On the 26th of September, I'm launching a new podcast called The Family Tree. One of the things it's about is people. I think the main issue really is being able to maintain the separation between different aspects of your life, just as you wouldn't talk about sex over the family dinner table. So there should be a space where you can talk about sex comfortably with people who also want to sort of listen and, and discuss it. Being a priest uh, at a superficial level impacts the way I, especially when I'm wearing my dog collar, impacts the way <laughs> maybe it shouldn't, maybe when I'm not wearing my dog collar it should be the same. But I, I think there's an additional awareness. So when I'm walking down the street, there's a sense in which I feel a level of connection, or I feel a level of empathy and sympathy with people. That, uh, that feels heightened in some way. They came on the playground and I said, it's nice to see you. Why, why are you on the playground today? Well, for the past three Thursdays, we got arrested by the police for nicking cars, they said. And we decided it was time to do something different. We want to build something really big. I was talking to a guy the other day, um, a Syrian refugee here in Berlin. He'd been separated from his wife and the three children in Macedonia. Uh, his wife was pregnant with, with, the ch with the third child and He'd just spoken to his third child who was born just a few days ago on the phone. This is a guy I was just having like falafel with. And his life is so radically different to mine. And his consciousness, his reality is so much tougher than mine. And I went away from that thinking, you know what, like, just be grateful. Be absolutely grateful. And he's, he's a really cool dude. I see him around. He wouldn't let me buy him a drink. He, he was just like, look, I'm just doing my thing. But it was really important to me to be sure, look, I have this consciousness, this society and this privilege. I will enjoy it. I will improve people around me as, as much as I can. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. Hello, I'm Dave, and I'm the guy that puts this stuff together. Today's episode is longer than most Getting Better Acquainted episodes. That's partly as a tribute to a podcast that my guest really enjoys. It's a recording that was made whilst walking up and down the South Bank in London and occasionally stopping in various different places. And it's a recording that was made in the rain. Remarkably, I think it's quite good sound quality, considering all of that. It's also a very appropriate episode to be putting out because we've just had World Mental Health Day and this episode does touch on mental health issues quite a lot. And it also is an episode which touches on the complexities of gender and race and sexuality and things like that. And a couple of points, some slurs are used, but they're used in a sense of an example rather than as something that the speaker is approving of, but just to let you know that those kind of words will occasionally feature in the conversation. But it's about lots of other things as well, and I really hope you enjoy it. It's the last in my conversation bank, so I'm basically conversationless unless I manage to record something before next week. I'm pretty sure that I will, but you never do know. Recently, quite a few guests have had to reschedule their conversations with me, which means that even though I thought I would have conversations in the conversation bank at this stage... I currently don't. So it's always a play for. Let's see what happens. I'm as excited as you are, but I'm pretty sure that there will be an episode of some form, at least, if not a full conversation next week. It's long enough already. So really, it's probably time for me to stop speaking and play the theme tune. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. 
Today, we're getting even better acquainted with Paul. Hello, Paul. Hi, Dave. Yeah, I've already done a, a GBA with you relatively recently, but you're back on the show again. Uh, we're walking along the South Bank at the moment in the rain. Um, <laughs> we may have to get under some shelter at some point. Yeah. Pray for my microphone uh, if you are a believer. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Um, but I guess a more pertinent question than that might be, why have you asked to come back on the show? <laughs> Uh, well, it was pretty much a year almost of a day. I think it was like a year to tomorrow's day that we spoke the first time. That's right. Something and like that. uh, as you know about me, I have bipolar. And at that time, I was kind of like in, in a bit of a depressive stage. And I wasn't too like too serious or anything. But And I, did, I enjoyed like the conversation loads. It was, uh, it was really fun. And I had some great feedback from it from my friends as well which was like really great to me they actually took the time to listen to the whole thing that's good because I always think like god I've waffled on for now and no one's going to want to listen to that I think everybody thinks I know, that yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah just like it, at that time you didn't really get me I didn't feel I felt like I was kind of like not my usual self in the conversation so I, I almost just wanted to come back just to speak to you again as much as anything and then having it recorded as a bonus you know what I mean yeah well I mean it's, it's nice to speak to you and you, you know I mean if you are in London in the future you, you don't have to um, <laughs> come on the show in order to meet up with me yeah um, yeah that's good I mean it's kind of like because I listen to, um, to You Made It Weird a lot with Pete Holmes when I'm working and he quite often comments on the fact that whenever he records a conversation with somebody they seem to just get a lot more out of it and it, but um, I mean I've listened to your show lots while I'm working as well I'm, I'm a bit of a kind of podcast hound I've gotten to the stage where I listen to more podcasts than music now when I'm working and it's um, it's mostly kind of like uh, not exactly a company thing but because I'm self-employed and I work from home all day it's just nice to listen in on all these different perspectives and you kind of really get to feel like you know people a bit more right. and, and, and you have your kind of um, understanding of how different people live widened as well like I really love it when you when you interview people who are from backgrounds that I just have no interaction with from uh, in the Midlands where I'm from because it's not quite as diverse as in London, of course like that. And uh, and yeah, it's, it's I wanted to come back because um, I enjoyed it so much last time and I thought it would be good to do it again with actually me here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's an interesting thing, isn't it? When are we when are we us and when are we not? Oh God, yeah, like, it's like that's a complicated one, isn't it? To, particularly if you've got mental health issues, it's funny because. I mean, I, I don't have bipolar disorder, but I do have uh, anxiety and depression. Yeah. And like when you got in contact with me and you were like, um, the first time round I was in a depressive state um, and, and I want to be a, a, a different version of me, the non-depressed version <laughs> of me, I sort of thought, how am I feeling at the moment? I'm actually really depressed at the moment when I, got the, when I get this message. And I'm thinking, well, and in that moment, I was like, well, it might be that it's just reversed. You know, it might be the depressed version <laughs> of me it's... and it's going to be the... But the, you see, because I... But actually, I'm, I, 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 I perked up a couple of days ago. I mean, That's perked good. up is, a, is, a, is not the way it actually is experienced in, uh, in life, but yeah, that'll yeah. do for the, for the moment. But of... also because I've, unlike <laughs> some of your intros to your shows, you mentioned when you've been going through a depressed stage when the conversation's happened, and I do think that you always kind of handle it very professionally. Like, I wouldn't necessarily know... I mean, I don't, I don't know you, like, as well as, as, as a lot of people might do. When you've listened to probably hundreds of hours of conversations that they've had with people, you can feel like you know them very well. Yeah. But, uh, but like, what you were saying just then about how um, every version of you is as equally valid as, as the other one sort of thing, I had a realisation along those lines, thinking about um, how I've been at different points throughout my life. Like, 
in terms of generationally different, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. Because I kind of, I've always had this feeling like it's just been a constant evolution and I've just been like the end result of all of it. But then I started to realise that they're all still inside there, like kind of right. slices in a loaf of bread, you know. And what it was that sort of made me start to realise that as well, and this is really embarrassing to an extent. But when I was about um, 11 or maybe even younger, no, I'll, I'll say I was younger. When I was eight, right, <laughs> I, I was like really mad on PJ and Duncan, who Fair are now enough. known as Anton Deck. Yep. And uh, they were like actually the first music gig that I went to, which is very embarrassing since I'm now a metalhead and go to like Slipknot and Nine Inch Nails and stuff. But um, but yeah, they, they had the you know the Let's Get Ready to Rumble and indeed, and yeah, no, I remember those yeah. songs. Well, I was like, I, I used to do like dance routines in assembly at school to them and stuff like that. Ace. And I was just completely obsessed with them. And actually, my my lucky number is 22, and that's because that's how many posters of them I had on my wall when I was eight. Air right, quotes with right. my fingers. Um, and yeah, and then a few <laughs> years back, they um, they did the thing of re-releasing that song, the Let's Get Ready to Rumble. And I got like 20 texts off all my friends going, hey, Anton Decker back, you know. But also when I when I decided to look the footage up, there was, <laughs> I could very distinctly feel the eight-year-old inside of me sort of leap with joy when I was watching it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of made me reevaluate how I look back at all these different periods of my life. Right. And um, that's kind of, this, this is going off in a different direction, but for that reason I've started to kind of allow football back into my life a bit like I know you don't like football <laughs> I'm not prejudiced against know, people know, who, who, who like football though <laughs> and as my mum told me the other day I did play five a side with friends when I was growing up sometimes Were you any when good? I finally found some friends um, was I any good no because it wasn't about that like I've only played football in circumstances where it's <coughs> literally let's kick a ball between two things mm. and like just lose but like, I feel like burn off some energy for an hour and not really care who's winning that's that's what i've <laughs> what i've done occasionally in my life but i'm not I'm but not i feel like a lot of children who do kind it. of have a bit of skill in football get a lot of pressure from their parents to to go into it like i it's a different matter entirely but i saw um i think it's like a national thing but we have this website on facebook which is spotted stafford and people just submit things anonymously and there's so many things where like uh fathers have posted updates about their kids like saying oh my kid doesn't want to do football and I desperately want him to or he needs to, you know, where can I go to sort of get him into it? And I just think it's unfortunate that there's such this pressure in, in those sporting terms. And that's kind of why when I was a kid, I didn't like football. I got into it when I was sort of in my teens a little bit. Right. And, um, and I actually, I had a period when I decided to see if I was any good at it. This was when I was like 11 or 12 and I started going to five-a-sides and participating more in, in PE and I remember like very I can and I can remember this so clearly it's scary I kind of like came up with all these stories in my head about every match I played like at school in PE and stuff which is like just stupid little things where the score probably ended like you know 12 nil or something like that and uh, yeah I had this kind of almost like a journal documenting my kind of career as a football player <laughs> which was entirely made wow. up of, of the matches that I had at school and so, yeah, I got into it then. And then in my 20s, I kind of really took a dislike to the football culture in this country. And I'd been to, I'd been to a few matches live. Also, I grew up supporting Newcastle, I should say. Um, and I went to a few Newcastle United matches at St. James's Park. And, and you know, that, the experiences there were great. It was for, like, my 18th and my 21st birthday and all this sort of stuff. But whenever I was around football fans, I just really didn't feel like I was fitting in. And I got to the stage where I was loathing the fans and, the, or, well... A section of the fans right. I shouldn't include yeah, all football no, fans no, under absolutely. that banner and, uh, and I kind of like 
I almost made myself stop liking football because of it. And so when I had this realisation a few years back about, oh, this side of me is still in there and it still needs nurturing in some way, you know, maybe I'll just start watching it just a little bit again, which I have done. We swing round, I think. Oh, yeah, we go, we go Yeah, well, we're staying under the shelter a little bit more than... Uh, yeah. We can walk back with the other way, but anyway, I don't want right. to. I don't want to stop you mid flow. So no, you, no, it's okay. I, you I had was... that. So you, were, you, so I have stopped you mid flow, unfortunately. <laughs> so, okay. so where were you? Like, I was. Oh, I was. I was talking about how I've allowed it to come back into my life a little right, bit. Right, of course. And I, I, it's just literally been like, um, you know, just keeping up with the scores a little bit. I'm not really. See, the, the thing that I didn't like about the time when I did love football is how much of an impact it had on my life if we lost or like if bad things are happening with the clubs like it would affect me personally on a level you know and, right. and that's what I've not revived with my current like of football right. you know what I mean I don't really class myself as a football fan I just sort of but also like there is a, there is a side of me and I hate to sort of admit this <laughs> but um, because I'm my circle of friends is mostly metalheads and sort of people into heavier music there's not a lot who are into football and a lot of them have quite um, negative attitudes towards it like they just write it off Right. as soon as it comes up so I do kind of sort of enjoy bringing it up slightly just for the kind of um, the look of shock that I'm liking something that metalheads aren't supposed to like you know what I mean right 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 <laughs> which is, which is a part of me that's not that great yeah but yeah so that's like <clears throat> it's when I when I was talking to you about having the um, the conversation when I was depressed um I was, I mean, because we spoke quite a lot about depression and I don't normally talk about depression a lot. Right. So it was, it was weird to hear me doing that, you know what I mean? And do you think you were talking about it because you were depressed? Possibly. Well, I think it might have also been because I've heard you talk about it quite a lot in a way that I related to right. with other people. So, I mean, I did, honestly, I felt like I'd had a therapy session after, <laughs> after that conversation. I was like, oh, can I, can I, like, pay Dave to record a conversation with me every week? That would be awesome. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not qualified. And anyway, you are one of the, the few people who donate to the show. So uh, you kind of do have paid for that therapy and then some. <laughs> well, I see, um, that's like, with all the podcasts I do listen to, like yourself, you made it weird. There's a few other ones which are more more comedy based that don't necessarily have the therapeutic value in a direct sense obviously the therapeutic in another sense for the laughter they bring and whatnot. but um but yeah it's it's kind of it is kind of like a form of therapy you know yeah <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I got I got distracted by some people looking at me talking into a furry mic and nearly walked into a post yeah yeah I was also distracted <laughs> by those people that's okay I get looks like that normally just from walking around anyway with me my too. appearance Yeah. This is a complicated. Uh, there's a complicated thing going on, listeners, that I can't fully explain to you. Um, but it's to do with kids uh, being entertained by us, which is something that probably both of us are quite used to in our <laughs> well, lives I, I, for different um, reasons. I actually, uh, yeah, it happens quite Let's a lot. Walk down the side here sure. where it's sheltered. You just reminded me of because um, I generally like. And when I say kids, I'm generally speaking, thinking of younger children than the teenagers and just past us, but um, they do seem to have a, an either a love or hate reaction to me when they see me. Like, I've had a six-year-old threaten to knock my block off before, <laughs> just out of nowhere. Right. Well, it's good that you're getting the love uh, reactions. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. I have some, sometimes had those. <clears throat> but, yeah, going back to that thing about me, you were saying about me doing intros and sometimes talking about my mental health issues when I'm 
when I've made them. I mean, it's quite surprising to me actually how many episodes I don't do that for. Like, I only do that for ones where I feel like something of my depressed state or all my anxious yeah, yeah, state has come through. But but a lot of them, um, I am depressed, but it, I don't think it's come through at all. So it's it's quite weird. Well, that's the thing as well. A lot of people are like really surprised when they find out that I do have bipolar because I've had like when I when yeah I, last... I think I was one of those people. I mean, we didn't really know each other <laughs> yeah. that well, but yeah. But when I last had a job that wasn't self-employed, when I worked in retail, I remember I started confiding to one guy that I worked with that I was like feeling depressed and. He said that he thought that I was one of those people who's happy all the time, you know. So it's strange. It's strange it? how people get that, um, yeah, get that impression of you. I think it's just about being good hiding it, really. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Let, let's we'll, we'll keep walking vaguely around uh, sheltered places. I think I'm quite enjoying the walking part of it. Yeah, uh, me I hope too. that's I'm, not I'm, too distracting for you. No, I'm I'm like because I because I do work from home. I don't get the usual exercise from. Um, you know commuting somewhere so I go for quite long walks on a daily basis it's kind of like my meditation time really right. obviously I'm not meditating right now <laughs> I am in a way but it's um it's, it's kind of a time when I just like to um reflect and sort of get my thoughts in order you know yeah and I think it kind of because I do it so often it kind of calms me down just going for walks anyway so I should do it more often I I've, I've, I've mostly I walk with other people and uh, a lot of my kind of early years of my life were spent walking around the streets into the late into the night with one or two people talking about things endlessly <laughs> that we thought. That sounds good. But, I like that. But, I mean, it's kind of like what you say. I, I, I definitely identify with that idea that we're lots of different people um, and that it's easy to sort of look back at those people and go, I'm not like that person anymore, but that person is still inside you in some yes. way. Yes, yeah even if you've learned a lot of things and you wouldn't be the same. I mean, I liked... I, I guess when I was younger, I think I, I didn't like who I used to be. Yeah. Uh, and now I try to have kind of uh, empathy and sympathy for who I used to be. And, like, I would... If I met my 15-year-old self, I would hug my 15-year-old self and, and uh, rather than... Uh, I mean, my 15-year-old self would think I was a dick. Uh, but, uh, but my 15-year-old self would much more need a hug than... Uh, than me telling him all of the ways his politics were wrong which they were wrong I'm not saying they weren't well you know you know the um, on this day feature on Facebook where it shows you posts from you know two years ago on that day or whatever so many times something's come up that's made me think like oh if if that wasn't me I would unfriend that person yeah (laughs) I I have that a lot so it's kind of it is it makes me kind of evaluate the opinions I have now in a different way looking back at how much they've changed from like five or six years ago because it makes me realise that you can't really have absolute opinions on things because the information that you have might not be you know you might not be fully informed on it or your experience might inform it a bit more yes no I have that exact same feeling and I have that feeling with the show it's got it's getting quite heavy this rain now <laughs> um, but I have that feeling with the show too uh, in that um, li- if I listen back to the early episodes I use all sorts of phrases all sorts of arguments that I wouldn't make now I mean, I, I started this show not defining as a feminist. I started this show, um, you know, with a lot of questions about women and men that I now think were, were not even the right questions. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so many things have changed. So it's weird to hear myself back. And I'm, it's interesting speaking to you about it because I'm also I'm quite aware that you're one of the kind of consistent listeners to the show who, who responds to me so to, to, yeah. to clear things up if anyone was wondering how we knew each other uh, that's how you, you sort of started listening to the show but uh, because of the fact that I was involved with Arts Emergency, Arts Emergency yeah, yeah. Uh, which you yeah. do the illustrations for mm-hmm. um, 
so that's how we know each other initially but then you started listening to the show and giving me feedback and we started talking yeah, more yeah. and that's one of the ways we got to know each other also through social media like Twitter and places um, but you're one of the few people who I know is currently sometimes hearing past Dave right <laughs> like I, I don't put these things out chronologically so yeah, sometimes yeah. past Dave comes up all over the place but when I edit now I edit with current Dave's opinions of past Dave you're listening to past <laughs> Dave edited by past Dave and that that's going to mean that things yeah. get through that I definitely wouldn't let through now so that's interesting to me well you know in another sense as well some of the things that I I mean because I talk about how I, I reevaluate a lot of the things that I think about now based on those differences from what I used to feel there are occasions when I'll, I'll be so used to the structure something has in my mind that I don't realise it's a past version of me that's saying it. Like I, I mentioned this to you on, the last time I came on the show, I told a story at the end of it, yeah. which I won't retell because it was like 20 minutes long. Well, people can listen back. Yeah, they it? can listen back. But um, I, kinda, I told it, and my, my friends get me to tell that story like three or four times a year because they just find it hilarious. And, and it is like, it's a great example of the kind of thing that happens to me. But then when I was listening to it back, I was kind of examining it a little more a little more than I do when I'm performing it if you like because it yes. is a performance yeah, when I'm yeah, telling yeah. it to my friends and I realised like I'm, I'm putting the emphasis on the areas that I totally wouldn't now like I, in this story it was a person who betrayed my trust in some way and I don't feel like I'm sympathetic towards him really in, in my telling of it and I would be now and I kind of emailed you about it and I said you know what listen back to this story I'm not unhappy with it being on it but I would have told it completely differently if I'd have examined it and to be honest like whatever kind of um slight annoyance at myself I had for how I told it the reward I've had from realising that I kind of had it set in my mind without examining what I was saying is even more than that slight annoyance you know because now when I do kind of look at these things from my past that I'm just used to regurgitating and regurgitating when people ask me about them I kind of think well like, is that is that me now that's telling the story or is, is it does it contain kind of viewpoints that I don't realise aren't on my radar anymore? Right. Like you were saying you don't necessarily identify as a feminist. Well, you didn't, well, didn't. identify yeah. at the start, sorry. There are kind of like little elements of stories that when I examine them, I think, oh, that's, that might be, maybe the wording should be slightly different. On right. That, you know? Because you kind of, as you, as you do, um, become more aware of how other people feel about things or other people's experiences, you, began to, you begin to have a, a wider scope on how things can be misinterpreted. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't want to get into the thing where you're constantly second-guessing yourself. But right. It is kind and of necessary. that's complicated for yeah. people who've got yeah. anxiety, like I oh, have. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, because sure. it is a really fine line between... And, you know, I'm, I, I'm both someone who's very anxious, but I'm also someone who, um, and maybe this is why, uh, re-evaluates my behaviour and tries to change myself to be a better person. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those two things can be kind of sometimes counterproductive in that I'll be so worried about being a better person and I'll get anxious about it and it'll go around in a circle and it won't help anyone. I know. Um, but it's funny that you say that. There's a, yeah, there's definitely things like that in terms of the show, like going back over the years. Like I, there was one time when I was talking to a friend who I went, met at university and we were going over what we used to think was a really hilarious story <laughs> um, about a complicated flatmate who treated a lot of people badly. Um, but I, we realised, I guess, as we were telling it, and I think I cut it out of the episode, and I'm not going to say whose, whose episode it was, but I think we even realised as we were trying to talk it through in the moment that, you know, 
we've got different sympathies now we've got different analyses now yeah, like yeah. And, and also there's things about like being aware that like as a white as white people talking about a, a Muslim man um, as these weird things that he did for example which were part of it and he, he was an atypical Muslim person that was why he was entertaining but um, or but also he wasn't just entertaining he was scary he was dangerous yeah, but but yeah. but those kind of things as an, an amusing anecdote they're not amusing mm. it's not and but it and so it was a really weird thing to sort of listen back to that and go hang on no I'm not happy with how this has been framed at all and cut it out but then there's also things like I think early on in episodes I talk about my teenage years I'm a little bit too like I am talking about myself as if, hey, I was a nice guy, why didn't yeah, people like me? Yeah. Whereas now I have a completely different analysis of that time. Yeah, the loneliness is still accurate. The, the, sad, the, the sadness and the, the things I should feel, I should still hug that teenage boy, like I said. You just have a wider context but, for it now. Yeah, but, but I, now I know that I wasn't entitled, just because I was <laughs> sad and bullied and, and mistreated yeah, doesn't yeah, mean anyone yeah. was... Into, and, and, and the friendship that those girls when I was growing up were giving me when they were telling me about their boy problems who weren't me, th- that friendship was genuine and my jealousy was my problem, not yeah, their sure. problem. I mean, I had, like, in my early 20s, I had quite a lot of problems with codependency. Like, um, and it, it's see, it's the kind of thing that when you're in it, you don't realise how kind of parasitic it is and how damaging to other people it is. Because from your point of view, I mean, I used to say like I had like um, you know white knight syndrome, like I wanted to be like you know the saviour for people. If I if I, if I if I had friends, it was just a case of their problems were my duty to fix. Right. You know what I mean? And it, it was like it's just an unfair situation to put somebody in because of course from their point of view they're causing you stress and, and oh, it's man, kind of like you a, are resonating with my past <laughs> very strongly at this moment yeah I mean I kind of like I have one friend currently who um, who she'll probably hear this because we're, we're kind of like she's one of my longest friends and, and we, we've kind of talked through all this at various stages but when we when we were first kind of in the first few years of our friendship I was like that with her like really badly like um, just completely taking all the problems onto me and, and you know trying to fix it and it does reach to the point where it's it's difficult for them to remain friends with you because they kind of see it as damaging towards you and she hasn't said that to me but that's kind of like that's how I would feel on the other side you know and uh, and yeah then I kind of I I think it was it was on it might have been your podcast it might have been you made it weird or something like that but yeah I heard somebody talking about it and it's one of those moments where it clicks with you and you kind of it's like it kind of like it clicks into context you know you understand right. it better and. I kind of I catch myself every now and then doing a slightly codependent sort of thing, and, and you know, but I do I I uh, if people if I see somebody with a problem and I know that I can't help it and it's it's kind of unreasonable unreasonable for me to expect myself to be able to, then I can step down now, and I can kind of like I, I have much healthier friendships because of it. Right. And this friend who I mentioned to I've been friends with for a long time. You know, we it kind of it did reach a point where we stopped talking for a year because we just couldn't be friends anymore, and then we kind of like. Like a year or so later, I sent her a text saying, "Like you know, I, I miss you, you know." And we started talking again, and we're like best friends again now. So, yeah, well, that's great. So it is, it is good to look back on those kind of parts of yourself in in the earlier years and know that you can recover from it, and it hasn't completely damaged, like you know, friendships and stuff like that. Because you do look back at how you were in relationships, be it friendships or partners, and you realise that the other person's actions, which you might have thought were unfair at the time, in the context of knowing how you were being with fresh eyes, you know. It kind of you can you can sympathise with them a little bit more and realise that you weren't hard done by like you were saying. Yeah. Know? And it's it's complicated, you know, all human relationships have these kind of complicated little little parts which you don't see until you're on the outside of it and, and yeah. And I think everybody probably looking back, I mean it's easy to get and I'm not saying it's not a lot of the 
a lot of it probably is to do with the fact that we're both socialised as men within in this society. Oh God, like yeah. that yeah. that sense of kind of uh, those entitlement things, those kind of uh, the sense of saving people. Like I've also had that kind of thing of like trying to save well, you th- you feel women so who I kind of was making time. yeah exactly yeah. into kind of yeah these these ideas of themselves that mm. wasn't who they actually were that wasn't fair to them. Like I've definitely done that. So a lot of that's probably to do with the fact that we're socialised as men but there's also the fact that it's not just that that, yeah. that actually women are as big or not all women um, but lots of women are as big uh, dicks as as men about these things yeah. like it's really hard to get that shit right without any any guidance and I feel like we don't get very much guidance within society or of, and often not from our parents or from the or from the relationships we're seeing around ourselves uh, it's really complicated for well when you say about um, us being socialised as men as well that's always been something that I've kind of had I've had like issues with masculinity a little bit and obviously you, you did your show recently yeah. um, mansplaining masculinity that's, that's the one called. yeah um yeah, which was great. Listen to that if you haven't already. <laughs> Thank you. Do, I don't have to do my own plugs <laughs> yeah, this show, which is great. Because um, <laughs> in my case, it has sort of been a been the sort of thing where I've, I've never really had the kind of masculine traits that I see portrayed. If you see like a stereotype of a man in, in an advert, it's, it was not relatable to me at all. Because like, I'm not into cars, for one thing, and my dad's a mechanic, and it was kind of like, it's a good job I'm an artist, because if, I, if, if I'd have gone into anything other than something car related he would have been disappointed but because it's something that's a skill that not everyone can do he's happy you know and that's so, for eagle-eyed this eagle-eared listeners that's the second question answered what does <laughs> what, what does he do now he is an artist i am an artist yeah <laughs> um and yeah with with the masculinity thing it's also it's also kind of been a thing with sexuality as well like i had like a few jobs at high school which i know you had similar you know people like you know calling you gay and stuff like that and, but in my case, I've always been just sort of a bit reserved about talking about the people I fancy. So I never brought it up at home with my parents. And I remember, like, quite clearly one day, I was, I can't remember how old I was. I must have been 11 or 12 or something. And I was sat at home, and it was my dad and my sister. And they were kind of asking me about, like, uh, you know, are you going to be bringing girls home and all this sort of stuff? And I was shrugging it off. And mostly it's just because I was shy, you know. And if you think about it as well, like, I've noticed this when I see how some relatives react with the younger members of my family, like, right. six or seven year olds. If they mention liking somebody, everyone right. goes, woo, you right know. from and, the start, it really gets... And it just, it drives it into you that you don't want to... Your embarrassment is going to be caused if you bring this up. So yeah. that's why I was reserved right. about it. And my sister said to me this one day, you're not gay, are you? And I was like, if, if I was gay, like, that was going to make me go, yes, I am, you, you've spotted it. Yeah, you know? you've made it sound like you're going to be really accepting. But also, <laughs> my, my dad gave me such a dirty look as well before she before she asked that question. And Because, uh, like, my dad, he's he's kind of... He's, um, he's discovered the internet in the last few years because we got him a tablet for his 60th birthday. He's 63 now. And so since he's kind of had, had his own access to news and that sort of thing and has been able to inform himself, his views have become more progressive. In, in like the 80s, he was like, you know, the typical kind of casual homophobia that existed in, in, in societies and, and all these kind of tight-knit communities, you know. And I remember there's, there's a picture of me from when I was about four or five where my sister and this is one of the benefits of having an older sister there's tons of photos like this I'm, I'm just dressed up as a girl and I've got like um, rosy cheeks painted on with lipstick and I'm doing the I'm a little teapot stance and apparently my dad said at the time you'll turn him into a puffer doing that so yeah it's kind of like with that in my mind and having a reservation about talking about girls I was kind of ter- basically terrified to bring up any sort of mention of my sexuality like but also like going through school there was always kind of things like I've always preferred baths to showers that's just me I don't give a fuck now because it's, it's, it's my reading time so you know 
and it's comfortable. But there's, there's this weird kind of thing like, oh, you like taking baths, you know, when you, if you bring it up at school. It's, it's, wow, I didn't know that was a, a, one, of, one of the markers of masculinity. Well, it's funny you, you should have say showers, that as well. power water rather than <laughs> you soft, have to, you have to be resistant. water. Yeah, you I have guess to be resistant against this, this downpour. Well, yeah, that, that was at my school it was. It might be different throughout the country. Like sure. But also it was things like I used to... Um, I used to like wear my bag with both straps over the shoulders because it was more comfortable. But if you didn't have one strap down, then that was a sign that your sexuality was to be questioned. Wow. Well, I know, people it's, it's really want to punch people for being uh, sexualities that they think <laughs> are somehow lower forms of sexuality. I know, see, that's the thing that bugs me about it as well. It is this kind of, if I was gay, so what? You know what I mean? But also... Um, I've always kind of like I've, I tend to get on with girls more than guys to be honest I mean you're kind of one of the exceptions in that you're one of the guys who I can just talk to and feel comfortable talking to like nothing makes me more nervous than me being like say I'm using a public urinal or something and, and some guy comes up and starts trying to have a conversation oh I hate that and I, I know that, that so probably, that's probably a bad example because if you're in a toilet and that happens anyway you're going to be nervous but yeah. but yeah I just kind of like get on with girls better and, and my friends kind of jokingly refer to me as one of the girls you know which doesn't bother me now it used to like a little bit but I have I have genuinely reached the stage in the last few years where I am kind of mostly accepting of myself but what kind of times when I mean because I have social anxiety occasionally I'll go out and I'll just rerun the whole evening through my head and just think of like yeah. stupid things I said and all this sort of thing but but yeah mostly I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with um, with being outside of the usual masculine realm you know what I mean because yeah. my kind of my view on it is that Whatever a man does is masculine and whatever a woman does is feminine. There's no kind of like... It, to me, it seems redundant to say that somebody's like a feminine male, you know, or a feminine male, I suppose. Is, is well, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, there are many different ways of looking at it, I guess. I mean, another way of looking at it is that they might be enjoyed by men and they might be enjoyed by women and they might be enjoyed by, enjoyed by people who don't define as either of those things. Well, it's I all mean, interchangeable as well. I mean, I know I'm using QI as my source here, so this may be incorrect, but... I, I, they've said on there before that pink and blue used to be reversed in terms of the gender they were. Pink definitely did. I didn't yeah. know that about blue, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's kind of like it does, the thing that annoys me about it, I guess, is that people don't see that it's a projection. It's not a. It's not an, an absolute thing that this is feminine, this is well, male. You know, high heels used to be masculine. <laughs> Those things change all the time, um, and so you know how we define these things how we think about these things they're always imperfect they're always changing yeah, yeah. but i think that these kind of ideas of this thing is what a woman does and this thing is what a ma- like man and woman are the only two things and, yeah, and that's the yeah. thing it's like you know i like baths too but i, I like bubble baths i like like <laughs> nice smelling baths um that is not something that i think uh has any relation to masculine no, or feminine not, i can't or men or women i don't i don't know how that the enjoyment of scent uh, mm. is surely a, a human thing. <laughs> and if and if that's one of the things that toxic masculinity is getting in yeah, the way of, yeah. men being able to enjoy nice smells. Although we're allowed to enjoy icy smells or like uh, <laughs> like musk or whatever, whatever the, yeah. the smells that are masculine approved are. But, you know. Well, yeah. the, the last thing I'll say on the kind of masculinity thing in terms of my life, I, do kind of, I have compassion for people in my life who have had that attitude towards me because I'm also aware that they're only like that because of the culture that they were brought up in, you know? Yeah. Like, with my, with my dad, I'm, you know, I'm certain he's only the way he is. I mean, it's kind of like, when I, when I listen to him now, I can almost hear his parents, you know what I mean? Right. And so, like, when I was, uh, when I was in my mid-twenties, a friend of mine was getting married, a female friend, and she decided to have um, a hen party where all the men were, invented, were invited, but we had to dress as women. 
and I needed my dad to pick me up at the end of the night but I thought he would probably be disturbed by seeing me as you know dressed up as a woman which I later found out he, he was kind of like worried about seeing me like that so I got changed before I went and got in the car you know and, and at that point I'm kind of thinking well you shouldn't really be concerned because I'm just at a party where everybody's dressed up like women it's not you know it's nothing to do with with sexuality it's it's just us having a good time you know but then I'm also like well this is something that I need to you know you, could, you can't get any you can't change or you can't evolve somebody's opinion straight off like hitting a button it needs to be done gradually you know incrementally so yeah no, that's true that's, that's one of the steps as, as I see it yeah, well I mean I, I know what you mean and I do try to have sympathy as well for, for people who are socialised to be whatever they are and it's definitely it's definitely a tricky thing like sometimes if, if you just educate people then and reach out to them and show them alternatives then they absolutely will change um and it, but you only find out when people are di- di- gonna dig in mm. on their prejudices once you start that process but if you start that process in a confrontational way then you often are never going to find that out. But then at the same time, it's very reasonable for people to be confrontational about these things since quite often they've experienced, you know, the entirety of history yeah, uh, being yeah. prejudiced to get, like, you know, it would be understandable for a gay person, for example, to not be able to be oh, as sure, forgiving, sure, yeah. right? But it's, I, I often, sometimes I think it's the job of people who are not as oppressed by these things to be able to, like, be the ones that are, are a little bit forgiving but also try and change people's minds yeah, without, yeah. like, do that labour. But then, at the same time, then, then that's people with privilege speaking on behalf of other people and it's also... Uh, it's you know it's I don't know forgiving people at all is a complicated thing if their prejudices are uh, ones that will affect actual other people. So I have no. I guess what I always think is I have I've, I find it very hard to sympathise with people in positions of power who have oh, those sure, beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, but if someone doesn't have any power, then I can be a little. I can be a lot more lenient. I well, think. it also it helps people if they know people who, who who might be gay or whatever the discrimination they have is and. In a lot of cases, you know, they don't create an environment where people feel safe enough to express themselves. So the likelihood is that they know loads of people who, who, who right. are gay, who, who are, you know, trans, whatever it might be. And, and they just... I'm, I'm hopeful that... I mean, with my dad, I, I, I know that there's no hate in his heart. And I know that he is kind of like... He doesn't have the same views on homosexuality as he did in the 80s now. Right. I mean, yeah, and I've known that to, I've known that to happen. People's yeah. prejudices to, to, to go, to leave over time or well, I'm sure I had all of well a sudden when I was really yeah, younger yeah. when I was at school I remember people there was quite a lot of racism you know just, just about the classes because there weren't many many black kids or, or any different nationalities really actually one, one thing which um, I guess it's not really risky for me to tell you because I know that you all understand but when I was growing up um, we because I live next to um, a Chinese takeaway and a fish and chip shop and my family used to always call it the chinkies and the chippies right and I didn't know any Chinese kids. There, no, there was no kind of Chinese interaction in my life whatsoever. And so my understanding of those terms was that it was chippies and chinkies. It was just the name of the place. It was nothing to do yeah, with yeah, race yeah. or anything like that. And then it was literally when I was like 17 or 18, I was dating a girl who lived in London and I, I came up here to see her and I was on a, on a bus with her and I, I said, like, oh, do you fancy a chinkies tonight? And she, like, slapped my arm. She's like, boy, you can't say that. That's really terrible. And I was like... What are you talking about? And then I realised what it was. Right. And I, and I was like, okay, that's horrible. I've never used that word ever again in my life. Right. And now it's kind of... Um, see, because my mum was still using it as well, and I know that she didn't... She wasn't aware of that. 
and there was a, there was a period when I was thinking like, God, is it is it worth me selling there because I know that she'll be really upset about the fact that she's may have said this in front of people and not realise it's offensive. But in the end, I thought, well, she'll also be compassionate enough to understand that she'll be happy that she's not using it now, but it does unintentionally cause harm to people. So it's kind of like casual racism like that. It's embedded in our in our linguistics. It's it's cultural. It's yeah. it's a really difficult thing to 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 get away from them. So that's why. Um, when it's people who I have some understanding of who they are, I'm compassionate towards, you know, towards the fact that there is probably a misunderstanding or, or the fact that they don't realise, you know, what, what impactful words they say are, they have on people, so... Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, ultimately, I think the problems are generally systematic. And if we can do make some kind of change in the systems... And so in some ways, things have occasionally changed systematically, and that is why in some areas of society views have become like more more accepting in different ways um but i think systematically if you change things then that's when everyone slowly kind of changes uh we can change people one-on-one where we can and that's great when we do um it's really difficult yeah. to get a perspective on how big that change is though i mean because there are times when i yeah. felt like there's been a lot of progression since the 90s or whatever like last time we spoke it was right after the election when the tories were re-elected and we were saying how it seemed like a shock within our bubble that yeah. um, Miliband didn't do better and it is that kind of thing how you get in these bubbles so I, I mean I really if I think about it I have no idea how, how much society as a whole has progressed on No I mean that's it's, why I say in some areas yeah, because it's, all it's definitely there's bubbles of it within yeah. culture and things are go, going back and they go forward so then they go back I mean things for women are worse than they were like say 10 years ago 5 years ago um, there's all sorts of pushback p- yeah. against all of these things from I mean and it makes me so frustrated in lots of ways because I think the people pushing back are often going to have been the people who've been hurt the most in some ways by uh, you know the, the, uh, this unjust world um, but then they're pushing back you know bl- again we're always blaming the wrong people I think that's what makes me so frustrated that people are kind of who feel powerless they look at people who have got less power rather than the people who've got more power and I don't really know but then that's why I think what you do shows, about that. shows like yours are really <laughs> helpful for people on an individual basis Hopefully, when they hear yeah. these I mean because I'm sure like I wish it, if it was possible to quantify how much my my understanding of racial issues and, and all these kind of complex and complicated social issues that look so much more simple when you see them kind of summed up in these hashtag movements that, in my opinion, in some cases reduces it down to kind of like a catchphrase and really misses out a lot of the important elements of it. Right, well, there's no nuance in a, no, in a, ca- no, in a hashtag. I mean, it's a much, complicated, much more complicated and nuanced world. Um, I find myself learning that every day, more and more. Um, I also, I mean, I should say as well, I, I never... I mean, it's something that I have um, vague opinions on based on personal experiences that I've heard, like, you know, anecdotes and whatever. I don't really feel qualified to have, you know, to be a spokesperson about these issues. No, no, well, like, I don't think people with no, our skin yeah. colour should be spokespeople on race. Definitely not. Uh, and it's like I, I was saying to you um, when you were talking to me about the... Um, who was the interview that you did recently that you recently at the time of recording ah right yeah it was yes right so that was uh, the episode um, with Natalie who is 
God Loves Women on Twitter, who yeah. is uh, a feminist, but a different kind of feminist, like more on the radical feminist axis. I don't know if that's how they, she would define herself. I never got her to define herself in that episode. So I was always trying to work out exactly what, where she stood. And I guess she was probably doing the same with me. But yeah, that was definitely a complicated one. So what, what about well, when I, I was, was doing that? I was, because um, I remember I, I commented on the post afterwards saying that it's, it was kind of enjoyable to... Um, to hear you discussing the subject with somebody who doesn't reflect the same views back at you and there's kind of like yeah. more of a yeah, yeah. more of a debate kind of sense because I mean you and are generally a discussion aren't they most right. of your episodes and, and I was saying how um, it was one of those situations where each side had valid arguments within the context of their experiences and hearing both sides just kind of builds up the layer of your own understanding so well, I, you know, I, I mean, I would never kind of... Well, I guess I am speaking publicly about... <laughs> right, you've about. waded into a complicated area here. But, um, but my kind of, like, I mean, because I, I... Well, I guess, I mean, I, I'll say this for, for the listeners because they can't see me. I have dreadlocks, and I, um, I co-own a dreadlock community called Dreadlock Truth. And it's, had, it's been around for, like, eight years, and there's thousands of members from all different races and all different colours and, and all, these, all these sorts of things. And um, so I've, I've heard like lots of experiences from them about the very specific kind of cultural appropriation sort of issues that come up as well. So it's it's kind of it's just one of those things where all you can do is kind of keep your mind open to the various viewpoints and, and you know. Yeah, I mean, where where do you stand on that? Like, because you cultural have appropriation. right, because you have got dreadlocks, yeah. and it's like it's not like exactly the elephant in the room. We spoke about the fact that you had dreadlocks the first time we spoke. Um, but I never, I didn't, I didn't quite get to the point where I said, you know, what do you think of the uh, many, many, many critiques of white people having dreadlocks yeah, by um, people of colour um, and seeing that as, a, as absolutely, they see it as cultural appropriation, yeah. Well, I mean, at the time of recording, quite recently, Justin Bieber had dreadlocks for a short period and I, I believe that he's shaved his head now, but that kind of, um, that made the subject of cultural appropriation very dominant in the news or at least in the feeds that I follow um, it's, I mean it's a complicated issue I think that cultural appropriation is something that you need to respect as something that happens I mean if you look around well, there, there are loads of examples where um, black performers and you know or just all these different areas of the arts money is being made off what they make but they're not the beneficiaries of the profits of it it's, you know it's all taken into white culture and all these sort of things as far as dreadlocks go, um, I mean, obviously they have quite a significant relationship with black history. But my own personal view is that, I mean, with my hairstyle, what you see on my head currently, every hair, every hair is grown naturally that way. It was like I, I would have to run a comb through my hair to stop it doing this, you know what I mean? Right. So, um, and there are also, um, there are historical examples from way back, like, you know, back in Egypt, back in... Aztec times where they, where they have found skeletons that have had dreadlocks or the remains of dreadlocks obviously they're not preserved that well um, so my, my kind of viewpoint on it is that you have to be sympathetic to cultural appropriation because it does affect people it has a real effect on people but um, I don't feel that having dreadlocks as a white person is automatically cultural appropriation because it's something that happens naturally to every hairstyle it takes it's easier with African hair because it dreads up, dreads up a lot quicker, but um, but yeah, it's 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 something that I mean to be honest, I've never had any negative reactions from people of colour in real life. I've seen like blogs on Tumblr from people who got very angry about white people with dreadlocks. Um, I've I've met 
loads of people through this community who 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 were African American, who were all different races, and they're all fine with white people having dreadlocks. It's to me, it's it, that whole side of things. It is like the extreme of a valid issue, if you get what I mean. I do, I do get what you mean, and I don't know where I stand on it myself. I, I know where I stand on, you know, people dressing as as, as Native Americans, oh, yeah, sure. you know, yeah. at, at college parties. Um, I know where I stand on a lot of kind of issues of cultural appropriation. It definitely is a, an area that challenges my views about uh, free sharing of information and everything being a remix and there being no originality and the, and people co-creating art and the world around them through our exchange of ideas. Um, all of which I do still passionately believe in, whilst at the same time also accepting the argument that there are definitely people whose um, artwork or intellectual work has been culturally appropriated um, in terms of other people benefiting financially from that and then there is definitely people who um, are not taking people's kind of religious symbols or whatever as seriously as they should that doesn't necessarily mean they might not choose to wear those religious symbols or whatever but they should do so understanding who they're offending and why they're offending because if there are going to be people who are going to be uh, being disrespectful about religious symbols I would assume that the, the most people with the biggest justification for that are people from religions who have rejected those religions because of the way that the power systems around those religions uh, made their lives uh, go so I wouldn't want to say we shouldn't disrespect religions because I wouldn't want ex-Christians or ex-Muslims or ex-Hindus or whatever to be able to protest against those religions that they have left um, but there's definitely no sensitivity from white men generally and that is a big problem um, so yeah, I mean, there's two white men's opinions on cultural <laughs> appropriation. Um, I'm trying to think: is it as the, as, oh, as the weather turned turned a bit better? Do you think or not? Down a lot more lightly than it yeah, is. so we can sort of maybe move on from under the uh, under the uh, fans of some kind, <laughs> air fans of some kind. It's going to be one of those uh, AMSR uh, <laughs> triggering yeah. uh, episodes, which you've. You hit me on to the fact that there's some episodes yeah, that have yeah. that. Well, actually, because I'm looking at your microphone now, it's got this big fluffy cover on it. I was actually watching an ASMR video recently where somebody was playing with one of those. It made very interesting sounds if, if you if you rub against some of this sort of stuff. And I have to admit, I kind of like, on the ASMR spectrum, I don't get it as much as a lot of people do. Like, it for people who don't understand or don't know what ASMR is, um, it's basically, the simple version is that certain sounds... Um, that you hear spatially around your head cause you to experience ting- oh, well some people get tingles in the back of the head I don't really get that I get like a weird kind of um, sensation in my ears like the word people use is eargasm and that is yeah. is the most kind of appropriate one I can use but yeah it, I, I brought it up to you because there are a few episodes where you're kind of out in the wild with people and occasionally there'll be a, a rush of wind or something like that and it'll it'll give me the tingles it's been I mean it's been a great pleasure to me to discover that the sound quality that I've chosen to go for <laughs> I, I do, uh, I causes pleasure to other people because uh, it has often uh, caused displeasure to some yeah, people yeah. it's nice to know that even if as I'm annoying some people I'm uh, <laughs> I'm uh, stimulating other people yeah ASMR is a really huge broadway have, have you like seen any of it on YouTube I, there uh, are thousands of channels and people use these really freaky looking like disembodied ears they're these microphone called the 3DO I think that it's used for like recording orchestras and stuff like that and it has like this binaural so the left records you know what's what's happening on that side and the right on that side and they, they give these ears massages and all this sort of thing 
Wow. And, uh, and I kind of like... I, ha- I don't think you know this about me. Do you know that I have synesthesia? Have I told you I this? didn't know that you have synesthesia. I'm really interested to, yeah. to know that, though. That's, it's a condition that really fascinates me. Well, I have... See, I have a form of synesthesia that doesn't really seem like it should be synesthesia. I have mirror touch, which is... Um, if, if Basically, if I see... Say I'm standing in front of two people and one of them touches the other one, I experience it as if I'm looking in a mirror. Like, I feel like a sensation on, on that part on of my your... body. Right, so you see someone so else... So it's on the opposite side that they experience it if they're facing me, so you... as if I'm looking in a mirror. You see someone, if they touch their own face, yeah. you would feel the sensation of your face being touched, but on the other cheek. Yeah, it's, it, it's okay. on, on the corresponding cheek looking at them. That's quite it's a not complicated... Like, uh, I know, it, it's kind of... Um, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel exactly condition. like being touched. It feel, it's more like a kind of numbness in the area. I, I can distinguish very easily between actually being touched. But right. yeah, it's, it's right, one right. of those things that I, um, I experienced all my life and I had no idea it was a thing until I learned about synesthesia and started Googling it. Is that, it's actually one of the rarest forms of it. But, um, yeah, with these ASMR videos, when they're... I can't watch the ones where they're fiddling with the ears because it just makes me... My, my ears go crazy watching them, so... Right. Even with inanimate human-shaped objects, I get mirror-touched in this video, it <laughs> That's fascinating. But it, see, it's, the it's way like, that brains work is fascinating. It's also a thing that I'm reluctant to bring up to people who don't know what synesthesia is because to people who are learning about it for the first time, it often just sounds like I'm lying, you know? Right, right. So. Yeah, that, you, that's definitely not what classically people would imagine synesthesia no, to I, be. No, I do actually. I have other forms of it. Like, I have the um, time-space form of it as well, but I don't have... I mean, because I, I have friends who have it where they um, experience words as taste and days of the week as colours and all these kind of... See that, yeah, that's the most fascinating yeah, yeah. area of it, from a poetic kind of point of view. Well, my, um, my art tutor at uni had... Um, I forget what the name of it is, but the one where he... Tastes colour, I think it is. Wow. Oh no, sorry, taste words. That's what it is. Because right. he, he would tell me what um, he would tell me what names tasted like, and if, if there was somebody that he knew who had a name but he didn't like the taste of, he would have to come up with a nickname for them. Because wow, it's crazy. I mean, it's like as somebody who experiences a form of synesthesia, even to me that sounds wild. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it must sort out. I mean, because I'm also reading a book called Hallucinations by um, Oliver Sacks. Who died last yes, year, I believe. Yes, he did. And that's really fascinating to me as well because I won't go into too much detail, but there's there's anecdotal stuff from there from blind people experiencing all these really vivid hallucinations where they see people walking to and from in front of them on carnivals and these whole scenes. And uh, and there's also areas that I didn't know existed, like uh, musical hallucination, where people hear music playing and it literally takes them investigating their surroundings to realise that it's not coming from an external source. It's crazy. I'm so fascinated with the brain. I really like... I have considered studying psychology or, or, you know, all these different areas that you can venture into if... I mean, I was going to say if it wasn't the fact that it would totally be for my own interest, but I guess that's not a negative reason. That's not a perfectly reason, reasonable reason. I just have it. it... I think I have it drilled into me that anything like that has to have a career end goal has to have a profitable end goal yeah, well, for it to be worthwhile that's, that's the kiriaki uh, getting into you mate. it is because they're, they're you know the whole idea of career is uh, a socially created one yeah and we don't know you don't know what the job future is going to be so you might as well do what you want to do yeah it's, I it's, mean you're, you're working as an artist right so yeah. I mean you're making a living from that 
that's that's enough to to, to, to keep you going. Do, just do what's fun. Don't don't worry about the career yeah, I mean, necessarily. I've, I have a friend who um, moved to Utrecht in uh, in the Netherlands, and he's 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 taking a course over there. And he's I mean he's he's shitting himself at the minute over the whole Brexit thing because that will make studying in Europe a lot more complicated. Right. <laughs> For, uh, for British students and stuff but, but yeah I, I, I've, I've been looking into courses overseas and stuff because I would love to go to somewhere like Amsterdam and study for a year or something like that unfortunately I'm I'm a, I'm too old now to benefit from <laughs> from not having to pay the higher fees so that's what's holding me back but well that and also I mean I, I do kind of um, I do kind of I feel like I I need to... I haven't reached the point in my illustration career where I'm willing to risk it yet. I feel like I need right. to achieve more before I kind of do the crazy thing, right. if that makes sense. Right. It takes a while to get to a point where you can uh, where you can make two years' work in a year and yeah. then you can yeah. have a year out in yeah, between. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. But I'm also... I'm, with art as well, I'm constantly just rediscovering the area I want to go in and the directions I want to go in. Right, because you're doing quite a lot of different kinds of art at the moment, right? Yeah. I mean, I had to sort of... This year, I've kind of rebranded my artistic identity. I'm going as Sketchy Magpie currently. Which I kind of came up with because a lot of people online know me with the username Magpie, so I kind of added Sketchy to it. And then I realised that if you search for Sketchy Magpie, I'm like the top five results on Google, so I was like, I better make use of this rare gift. So, um, yeah, currently I've, I've been using that moniker to experiment with animation and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's interesting, I started a YouTube channel and I'm now in competition with my nephew because <laughs> he has a YouTube channel and... <laughs> He's, uh, he's 13 and at that age they're just completely obsessed with subs and likes and all this sort of stuff. But it's so weird though because, I mean, I, he's been on YouTube for a few years now and his little sister has a YouTube account as well and she's like eight or nine and I, I, I feel like at that age if you're a creative person it's important to be able to experiment without the feedback or without people seeing it, you know. Yeah, or maybe some feedback, but not global yeah, feedback. Yeah. That's, I'm definitely very aware of that. But also myself. there's, like, I can... With, when I watch his videos, you can tell what he's been watching because, like, everything that he's doing, it's all kind of React videos and gaming videos. But I t- it's so crazy, though. Like, I sometimes... Um... Right, so remarkably, I ran out of space on my card. Uh, on my on my recording device uh, but pleasingly uh, when you run out of space on your card you don't lose everything uh, <laughs> unlike if you drop the, the machine on the floor yeah just happened to be a few times so you were saying I, I was about to confess some creepy behavior before right. divine intervention stopped me <laughs> I used to search for vlogs that people were starting because um talking about mental illness and bipolar and stuff like that because you know a lot of the really popular vloggers you can't interact with them because they have so many subscribers so I always you know I used to think if I find somebody who's just starting up I'll give them a bit of encouragement and maybe kind of you know form a new friendship sort of thing but if you do if you search for new vlogs now it's all like seven and eight year olds and it's all the same video pretty much it's like but it's crazy like how much their parents invest into it as well because they've all got like podcast studios my nephew's got a gaming channel as well as his vlogging channel and he's got um he's got a special gaming chair He's got a special camera to film him and a professional sort of um, microphone. And on his game channel, you can't see him or hear him. <laughs> he's just its just like, he's, he's playing... Because that's the thing as well, all the kids who do gaming channels now, I mean, I'm going to sound like the 32-year-old I am now, <laughs> but they, they just play like... I mean, because I watch a few gaming channels where they're playing games like Silent Hill or Resident Evil or stuff like that. 
they play like all these all these games like there's this one called Grotopia which is like basically if you imagine that Super Mario was a massively multiplayer role-playing game that's basically it it's, it's that kind of look to it and he kind of he communicates in the video by typing within the game so it pops up in a speech bubble and it's just like imagine 60,000 videos that are all like that right. and it's like but yeah what I was saying about but the, then maybe that's a good thing the, the fact that there's 60,000 means that, that no one's paying attention to anyone well, particularly that's, that's a maybe, good thing maybe maybe really. because I have I have had before that I'm so glad the internet wasn't around when I was at that age because you do you have this creative impulse in you to make things and you want the feedback I remember when I was when I was this age I kind of I had this this was actually when I was doing the PJ and Duncan dance routines and um and so yeah when I was creating stuff at that age should we sit on one of these chairs for a bit let's sit don't know how wet they are are you alright with sitting on wet chairs I'm fine I'm fine yeah I also don't care about I'm sitting on wet I actually, I do like the wet weather. I think we're in the background of somebody's photo here. Ah, yeah, we are. Um, well, we're in front of a tourist attraction. We're in front of the London Eye. Yeah, we can be part of the tourist attraction. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when I was creating this stuff at that age, my kind of goal was to get on TV, which is a very difficult thing. My nephew's goal was to get on YouTube, and he could do that within three minutes. So, Right. There's a kind of... I think that there's a... You need to kind of have an unattainable aim at that point where as far as getting an audience for your material is goes because I just think that um, you you need to be able to make mistakes absolutely I, I think a lot of my early work I definitely wouldn't want people to see now particularly and I definitely am glad that I did that offline and I'm also glad that I did all of my kind of I wrote plays without the people who were bullying me at school mm. being able to read those plays like I put those plays on but the people who were bullying me at school didn't come to see those plays uh, you know so I mean that's that's a very pertinent thing I think for a lot of artists well, uh, I think how that kind of how sadly are getting bullied <laughs> oh yeah it is, there is something about the kind of spirit that takes to art that is also vulnerable in, in school situations because my nephew gets bullied as well or he got bullied at, um, at his primary school I'm not sure how things are now but it's kind of it's also a weird thing where um, and I, in no way am I using this to kind of justify bullying <laughs> in any sense but all of the most interesting people I know had difficult upbringings or childhoods at school and I don't think that it's necessarily something that um, should be like that. Right. But I feel that, I don't know, I feel like I'm a better person now than I would be if I was popular at school. Yeah, I think it... I realise that's a complicated... I think it can go both ways, though. I think sometimes you can be a better person, sometimes you can be a worse person, sometimes you can be both. Well, like to I'm be a honest, worse person in some ways, yeah. maybe a better artist. To be honest... I don't know I'll, if that's the, a good payoff. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this as we're on microphone. As I was saying that, I was thinking in my head, I don't think I actually agree with this statement that's coming out of my mouth. No. So, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, I, I think it's definitely important, as much as we're all trying to hopefully uh, improve the things that come out of our mouths, <laughs> we definitely have to have a space, not necessarily a public space, not necessarily mm. a public platform, but a space within our lives to say... <laughs> stuff that we are not sure of yet to try out our thoughts as someone who has no inner monologue where everything I say is my thoughts generally yeah. uh, it's, I, I'm very afraid of a, of a world that doesn't let me do that um, whether it be the internet that, that causes that fear or just you know um, me self self uh, censoring too much which I, I think we should self censor I think we should 
but there's a line somewhere. Well, I've, I've, one thing that I have been trying, I mean, because the last sort of four or five years, I've, in my view, gone quite a long way to try and see how I can improve my own sort of approach to all areas of my life. Like, and it's involved most of the time trying to go out of my comfort zone, to be honest. Like, I've tried to do things that I would normally just turn my back to out of fear, you know, like um, one of those things I've been going to download festival the last few years, which is quite a big thing for somebody with social anxiety. But um, I can't, what, what did you say last? I completely lost where I was going with that. Well, what, 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 well I don't, I'm not sure what I said last, but why have you been going to download, which is a big festival, uh, as someone who d- has social anxiety? Well, I kind of, um, in my early 20s, when I was uh, suffering the worst from bipolar before I knew that it was a thing or that I had an inkling that I might even have it, I, I really struggled to, um, to exist in social situations. Like, what I mentioned earlier about running things over from my head, that used to just be the constant state I was in if I went out on a night out. I'd be... It was as if I was outside of my own body watching and judging myself in every interaction I had with people. And it was like... It, it was literally at the point where I, w- I would often disappear on myself. Like, I remember a few occasions where we'd, we'd be in town, me and about six or seven of my friends, and people who I, I, I loved dearly, you know, people who were really close to me. And we'd be going from one pub to another and I'd just wait until I was behind them and then I'd literally leg it down an alleyway and go home and then, like, send them a message. Some ridiculous excuse for At the time, I thought, oh, they'll believe this, you know. Like, so it, it, was, it was really terrible in my teenage years socially. I had, like, no social life, pretty much. And then it kind of got to um, the stage where I was becoming more comfortable in my own skin and I was able to go and be social with people without constantly judging myself or running this kind of um, this kind of live system of you know you're, oh that was a bit of, even things like how I'm sitting like I used to look at myself and think oh that's a goofy way to sit all right. this sort of stuff and, uh, and so yeah my friends have been going to Download Festival for I think it's the 11th year it'll be for some of them now and then one year the lineup. I mean I'd never, they'd always been trying to get me to go and I was like no I'm no way I'm going to go to a festival and, uh, and then this one year when I when I had reached a stage where I was more comfortable, I looked at the lineup and I was like, you know what? I feel like I kind of missed out on a lot of the socialising in my teenage years. I'm going to try and start making up for it now. So um, so yeah, it was it has been really even every year like a few days before we go because we go for the five day camping as well. Right. So we're there camping for two days and then the music starts on a Friday and Saturday and something. And I'm, I get so nervous for days running up because the, the attendance is usually between like. I think last year it was down, it was like about 60,000 or something, but it's been as high as 90,000 while I've been there. And um, it's it's nice to be there. I mean, I do kind of, to be honest, I don't necessarily feel like I fit in with a lot of the metal community. Like, I'm kind of somewhere between a metalhead and a hippie. So, like, I, I mean, I'm, I, t- I tend to find that... Um, I'm, too, right, too many edges for some and not enough yeah, for others. Yeah. And also the, the kind of the demographic at Download the last few years seems to be more in the kind of late teens, early twenties side. So it might be a generation thing as well. But I um I also I see this is one of the things that you learn as well when you when you become more self aware as like an introvert. Because I I started to feel like I really didn't fit in. But then I realised oh the people who I who I would get along with they are there. They're just not the visible ones because we're, we're hiding back and, like, you know, right. on the edges of conversations and stuff. So once I began to sort of seek out more of the people who I had a vibe with, I started to find these little pockets where I could get comfortable because um, also, I'm not sure if this is my bipolar or if, it, if it's just um, just a general social anxiety thing, but I really struggle to be around people 24-7. 
Right. And uh, I remember the first show I went, actually, the first night, you, you tend to make quite a lot of friends, like, bumping into people, because there's, like, um, four or five different campsites. It's a pretty huge area. And the first night, I met this group of people, and Miss Gill started talking to me, and she used to have dreadlocks, and she was kind of, like, playing with my hair, and we were just chatting a bit and getting on, and she went off, and, and, and then it got to the fifth day, the end of festival, when I was, like, completely socialed out. I went down to the arena and, and I was like, oh, I'm, I need to go back to the tent just to collect my thoughts and have some time by myself, you know. And I was walking back and she suddenly appeared out of the crowd and she was like, oh, hi, I can't believe I've seen you again and all this stuff. And I really, really desperately wanted to talk to her, but at that point I just had nothing left in, in, the, um, in the tank, in the social tank. And I kind of like tried, I stumbled over a few words trying to make conversation. And then in the end, I remember it so clearly in my head. <laughs> she just kind of like, she... She got to the stage where she visually realised it or visibly realised that she wasn't going to be able to get a conversation out of me. So she stepped to one side and kind of like motioned for me to go past. And I was like, yeah, bye. And I was like, God, I bet she thinks I hate her or something like that. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that, that was the first year. And that was when I didn't really understand how to control my social anxiety in that situation. So now I know to, to kind of um, ration out my being social there. Because like, it's quite easy to wander off and do your own thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been fun going there. It definitely has knocked a bit off the edge of my social anxiety and it's also made me realise that I'm not somebody who finds it impossible to be social with people. Right. Like, I, I used to feel like I was broken, like I just couldn't right. exist in social situations, you know. But when you do have people coming up to you who know nothing about you and they don't have the prejudices, prejudices that you imagine or you project on other people that they might have about you, it does make you more comfortable. And, and um, it's I can't... I can't explain to people who don't have social anxiety how nice it is, how uplifting it is to have a social interaction with somebody that doesn't leave you feeling horribly embarrassed. Like, I'll go to Cafe Nero and I'll order my drink and I won't feel like I'll say anything stupid and then I'll be at the table like, yes! <laughs> you know what I mean? I know that's really, that sounds really desperate, but... It doesn't sound desperate to me. Like, I think people have different kinds of problems in the world and, yeah. and it's important to remember that they do and I don't think it's desperate to find pleasure in small achievements that are actually really big achievements for you because of the way that you interact with the world it's funny as well I think the last time I sat on this bench was sort of like maybe two years ago, three years ago and the person I was speaking to was also talking to me about <laughs> experiencing social anxiety and Were I you think, getting some deja vu then? Well a, a little bit but I mean I think it's interesting, I mean I experience social anxiety too but in a very different way to you because I think it comes from different route. Yeah. Like uh, my my social anxiety comes from from the fact that naturally I w I can spend twenty four hours with someone I can can interact with people constantly in some situations although I do also need my own time because I kind of I think I'm an ambivert whatever yeah. that quite means yeah. but I mean I in the right circumstances I can talk to people for ages but I I'm also really worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing that I'm going to that I'm imposing myself that I'm speaking too much um, and also that like. The, the kinds of things I want to talk about people aren't going to be interested in I always yeah, feel I know, that, I hate that, that in a big way so you're going to be boring people yeah and also shocking people like like I'm not very good at having an awareness of what's an appropriate kind of conversation to have yeah yeah uh, and sometimes that's funny sometimes that it cuts through the crap of society it means I have a really genuine conversation with people but sometimes it's understandably overwhelming and it, over my life it's been about learning uh, where, the, where the level is for that like I think it is important to cut through the crap of society and I think it is important to not just kind of talk in a, in a way that hides who I am 
but at the same time it's definitely important to understand other people have boundaries they have like you say right you've got a certain amount of uh, interaction that you can do in a day if I come along and suck out all your interaction ability then you know that's kind of a, a thing that isn't great for you so I've got to kind of be aware of that well I can if your thing as well is I I've found that there, I mean, I've always been going through life feeling like I'm yet to find my tribe, if you know what I mean. Like, I always get into these kind of, I guess it started with the football fun thing and, and then there's with the metalheads and stuff. I, I always get into these social circles and, and this is kind of with my friends to an extent. I mean, I have one or two friends that I've, in that group that I've been friends with forever so I can talk to about anything with. But I'll always feel like these people don't quite get me, you know, and, and like there's only, there's a very few people who I know who actually understand my humour and kind of get when I'm making jokes and stuff and my friends actually actually it's not just my friends my family has this as well a few people kind of keep telling me that I'm really defensive and the reason is like I remember when I was a kid like because I was quite reserved and shy I never used I always used to get the feedback Paul needs to ask if he needs help you know all this sort of stuff if we're watching TV or something and we're watching a quiz show and everyone was shouting out the answer I'd be the one who wasn't shouting it out and so everybody would think that I was stupid or stuff and I remember my like I quite clearly remember my dad coming home one day and saying oh is the idiot here and stuff like that and so I, it got to the stage where I was like I, I got the um, I understood the tone of their voice that they thought that I didn't know something or that I was being stupid when in fact I was just being reserved so I would answer defensively you know and with my friends as well I was with me saying about how them saying that I was one of the girls and all this sort of stuff I kind of I catch myself now, but the reason that I'm defensive is because I'm used to being teased or right. kind of, you know. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of it's, it's really shitty when people say you're being defensive. Yeah. Although I mean, it's also about finding a balance because the problem is when you have been picked on loads, you do get kind of defensive, yeah. and you do get in positions. I've been in them many, many times where I'm acting as if I'm being picked on. I've been triggered. I'm feeling the experience of being picked on but someone isn't picking on me see what it is for me and I, that's I, not good on, that's not fair for them yeah. it's not fair on me it's not fair it's just not right like because so i think if i am um, how to manage that it's tricky if i do if i do react defensively i think it's because i'm anticipating what what they might come what might come after what they've just said based from previous experience so yeah. like you said i'm projecting onto them the fear that they're going to take a step further so i'm not actually reacting to what they're doing like you say and it's kind of it goes back to that thing of um, trying to stop projecting onto people and and one thing I've learned as well is that people very rarely are thinking what you think they're thinking as well like I've had so many occasions where I've been in a social situation and just been convinced that I've embarrassed myself right and then I found out later like they're like what are you talking about yeah <laughs> or if I if I say like oh you know this thing I said that was really weird right 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 and then they're like what no I've, I've got yeah. no idea about <laughs> that happens all the time three so. years later you ask someone about a thing oh, that God, you and said I, yeah and they don't even remember that you said it I know and I'm, con that. I'm always running things through my head yeah. like things from when I was like probably 11 or 12 that I can remember <laughs> were just really embarrassing and you I kind of like I am learning to let them go. It's, the good thing is that it's mostly, it is mostly the old stuff that I'm going through because the stuff that I would have been mortified by that happens now, I can let it go. I'm just learning to let go of the old stuff that still influences how I am in those situations, you know? Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Social anxiety, man, it's like... It's such a... It, it's such a thing that's so common. Like, I know so many people who suffer from it to the point where, like... There are, there are honestly days and this surprises people as well. It's like when people 
say that they think that I'm one of the Tappy Blues happy all the time. There are literally days when I can't leave the house. But this is one of the positives that the internet brings us. It yeah. might not be great for, oh, your, yeah, for, sure, for yeah. your nephew, but it, and in many ways, and I, there are things I worry about with the internet too, but I also think there are many great things about it. And one of those things, apart from the fact that it allows people to make podcasts and it allows you to make like art in a way that probably is different from, from what would have been you, you able to make in the past, it means that people with social anxiety, people who in the past would not have been rec- like. They never, we wouldn't have heard their voices. And then, you know, suddenly they've got so much more voice. Yeah. Because they can say, you know, I've, I've, I follow so many people on Twitter who have social anxiety. Uh, the idea of social anxiety is, is gradually becoming less and less stigmatised to me the more and oh, more yeah, I sure. see other people and also who tw- have it. Yeah. Twitter is great for artists as well because if you follow our professional artists on Twitter, you realise that everyone has the insecurities and that... The, the constant fear that what you're doing is shit and that you're not good enough and it was say like when I when I first started following the artists that I was like aspiring to be like or to have like similar career paths on Twitter I, I was like oh my god everybody feels like this I it, it like it literally is sometimes enough to give you the confidence to continue not to just give up because like I quite like um I quite there is a part of me that likes writing I kind of get that out of my system now by writing letters to people like I have a few pen pals and I kind of <laughs> my letters are like you know I plan them out quite a lot when I write them I would like to write comics and stuff but I don't have the same confidence in my writing abilities to get past that initial stage but because I followed all these artists and I know that I have the kind of the technical ability to be able to do something decent because I know that the fear within me that's like oh this is shit this is shit you know it's not worth doing I can get over it because I know that everyone experiences that but I also kind of feel like it's it's a good thing for me that I am dis, not displeased but not entirely satisfied with the last piece, I, piece of work I did because it means I've always got somewhere to progress to if yeah. you're at the stage where you think that what you're doing is the shit then I think that's when you kind of have a bit of a creative problem I think again it's about balance though yeah. I think it's, you can easily go too far you can't, oh yeah, you can't just be a self-hating artist I mean I know too many artists who are brilliant who uh, do themselves down hold themselves back uh, are never able to just have that moment of like being proud in something they've achieved like I try to I try to when I do do something I'm proud of or that other people <coughs> feedback and tell me that they also think that it's good um, I try to take that as a moment and just like actually own that and have that because if you don't then you never have mm. like any moment where you're satisfied with yourself because I don't know, for me, the art I make is so tied up with who I am yeah, that yeah. it's a judgment on me if I'm thinking it's rubbish art and if other people are thinking it's rubbish art, that's a judgment on me for me. And it if I don't so have those moments of like, I'm all right, my art's okay, yeah. I've done something that I can stand by, I mean, that's, yeah, they're the only moments I can just relax and not, and mm. not feel churned up. Well... <laughs> uh, those are, those and the uh, and the moments I distract myself entirely from thinking about myself, yeah. uh, which is the best <laughs> moments. This also it's quite terrifying to have your work out there to be reviewed as well by people or to have people comment on it. Like uh, most of the stuff I've done professionally is is kind of within the educational system, so it doesn't have that feedback from from you know people who are who are consuming it. But I have done a few things like I work on independent comics and stuff and. There was a podcast that reviewed one of the comics I drew a while back, and it was listening to it. It was so <laughs> I just like wanted to leap into the conversation, you know. And so, like when when I have a piece of work out there that is um, is able to be reviewed and critiqued by people, 
it's so terrifying and, and like I said I've been getting into animation I actually started that channel this week and I've had such a positive amount of feedback on that but it's kind of bored me over a little bit like it was an animation that I made for a podcast it was a clip from a podcast which I kind of made as a surprise for the host because they're coming up to their 200th episode well I guess I can say what it is I'm thinking that I'm on BBC Radio and I can't plug a rival channel for, but it's yeah, podcast you, you it's can fine. Pl- plug anybody you like it's save it for the show and, and uh, yeah it's their 200th episode so I thought I'd animate this thing for them and I kind of thought in my head I thought oh yeah I'll do this and it'll just be like a little cool thing but the, the host has really touched that I made this for them took time to do it in the well, feedback yeah, so it's an animation <laughs> you made of their show for yeah. free and it's good but the weird, you know, the weird thing is, because of how much of kind of how much it's impacted him, like I mean, because he even said it's one of the nicest things anyone has done for him. And I kind of like there was a part of me that was kind of like I wasn't prepared for this emotional feedback. I kind of almost wish I hadn't done it to an extent because I'm kind of safe hiding behind the rock. Even if the feedback that comes back is like really kind of over the top, great, which is wasn't over the top. It was kind of like you know I understood where he was coming from. But there's this kind of there's just this fear of, of having your work seen that you have to overcome, even if it's positive feedback or if it's negative feedback. Because if it's positive feedback and you don't have the confidence in your work, then you just feel like, oh, you know, they don't understand... Oh, not that they don't understand, but you feel like you've somehow managed to trick the audience into thinking it's good. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, feedback is a, a funny thing. Um, I have a very complicated relationship with it, which I think doesn't make me unusual as a no. someone who makes anything i do um, try to give people feedback on things though like even if it's even if a subject that doesn't impact my life which i don't really have any right to comment on i always kind of like i feel the need to um you know just to just to acknowledge it and kind of say this was enjoyable you know what i mean because i feel like um I, I mean, I, what I do is I kind of look at things that what would I like to get back if I was putting this yeah, out, and I do that. I think that's, but I think giving a positive feedback or like a, a, good, a shout out to somebody that's doing something to let them know how much it means to you, yeah, that's great, and it and it feels good to get that as well as to to give it. I think negative feedback, especially const- like if it's constructive, if it's constructive, um, is much harder to take, mm. but is so much more valuable than the positive. Um, on a kind of improving what you do way. Yeah. Like sometimes I will, will I, I think sometimes people feel like I'm, I'm bad at taking criticism because I am bad at literally receiving it. Like the moment they, re- they give it me, I, I really struggle not to, yeah. to, not, not to be able to hide my defensive reaction. I don't, how, are you, how are you with receiving compliments? Not very good at no, I, I'm terrible. I can't, I, I literally, because I've like, um, I kind of, when I was launching my career, I, I kind of, I shoved my romantic life to the side because I needed to devote all my time to doing my artwork. And then, like, the last few years, I kind of let that back in, and it was, I reverted to my 19-year-old self. Like, when girls started flirting with me, I would, like, run away. <laughs> and I've gotten over that again now, luckily. But, yeah, I am. Yeah, it's, it's like you say, it's both sides of it. It's so difficult to receive compliments. That's something you have to learn. You have to... Yeah, you have to do you have to, that. You have to kind of, like... You just have to... I mean, what I do now is I just say thank you. And, right, it's respectful yeah, to the other person. Yeah. That's the thing to know. Like, that's the thing I didn't understand. Like, I found it so hard to take compliments. But I didn't realise that if I didn't take that compliment well, then someone's being nice to me. And, like, if I'm not appreciative of that, then they're not going to feel like it's nice to be nice to people. And it is nice to be nice, whether I can handle it or not. So I have to learn to up my game. So that's... Yeah, I've definitely struggled over... 
over the years with compliments but but when people give you negative feedback um, if it's constructive negative feedback um, sometimes I don't take take that well although I, I have got better at taking it I still can't hide it I know yeah like I, I can I can not say words that will upset people unnecessarily um, and I can I can just say fine say you know I'll hear you and I will not like, but I can't I can't change the fact that it's emotionally upsetting me inside I'm not very good at hiding my emotions generally yeah. I wish I was um, it would make me a much better liar um, that is if I do get a, a bit of negative feedback that is one of the situations where I can undeniably say I am defensive yeah <laughs> that, is, that is like when I'm trying not to be but I've also the way I kind of learn to cope with it if it's not in person if it's in person it's a different matter but if I, if I receive a bit of negative criticism or a critique of my work my general tactic is to not reply to it straight away yeah. to let it sit and yeah. then go back to it because often it's not it's not considered my response to it I can I can I can't it's like, almost like you kind of get a little bit of tunnel vision when you get it like yeah. you can't see the you can't see what they're actually getting at you just see the criticism well I'm much better now as well at taking on that criticism as in lots of different ways like first of all I'm better at seeing that if someone's got a problem it doesn't mean I agree with their um, solution but their problem is probably something I need to look at and see how I can solve it. It might be in a completely different way than they think. Um, but if, if they're having a negative reaction, I need to look at why. They're not always going to be right anyway, but I'm much better at looking at that straight away. Whereas, like, there are times when I realise, I've realised, like, years after I got a really great piece of constructive yeah. criticism that it was constructive criticism like I look back and go oh my god that person told me exactly how to solve that piece of art and I didn't listen to them and I carried on making terrible art for a lot longer than I would have if I'd have listened to them um, which isn't to say that the things I make everybody likes for example people listening to this probably object to the uh, to the sound of building works in the background <laughs> that, that, that have been happening stuff. well you don't when you're actually not listening through no, the headphones no, no. it means when I'm doing these kind of conversations I can hear the um, the background sound that my listeners will eventually hear in some form I may be able to tidy it up I probably won't be able to um, but but yeah, but I mean, I, my but, kind of, but it means that the people I'm speaking to, they're in the real world, yeah, and the real yeah. world doesn't have background sound. It, you just literally tune it out. Uh, but I am aware, unfortunately, as much as I don't cater to people who don't like background sound, I do understand that that part of the reason sometimes people don't like background sound is they can't tune it out. As much as some people get pleasure from that some people literally can't stand well, it also, it drives them crazy and that is a perfectly reasonable yeah. reaction so I, I know I can be a bit like snobby to those people or not not appreciating other people have different um, ways of listening that not everyone can deal with background sound I'm sorry well uh, even with an ASMR there, is, there are sounds that people have negative reactions to like I, I have um, I can't remember what the term for it is it begins with them but it's it's a dislike of the sound of people like swallowing or Oh, a misophobia. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's right. So, and there's like, there's quite a lot of a, a ASMR videos where they're chewing gum, and I can't, I just can't do it. There's something about the sound, like it's not even that it goes through me. I just can't hear it. So, so do I, you I hate do it on the that. show when people are eating? Um, eating now is just drinking generally. But if people drink on the show. Does that bug yeah, you? Yeah, but no, but I don't normally get to quiz my listeners so <laughs> so intensely. I can't. There might be a time when I'm kind of like. Oh, 
clinch, you know, just a tiny little bit, but it doesn't bother me as much as on shows where they're sitting right with a microphone here and they take a big gulp and you can hear it like go down the gullet and it's... <laughs> right, because the mic's in the room on my yeah. show rather than yeah. actually by people's mouths, which is... Uh, no, some, I, honestly, some I people like, don't like that, but some I people think, do. I like it. Did you... I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen something like you did an interview with your dad in... Uh, Restaurant or sort of cafe or something because I remember you'd ordered food. I think it was your dad. Didn't yeah, that was at the that was at Stansted Airport. Because you were just about to get on. Yeah, the it was on a web. I, I, I really liked the sounds of the knife and fork in the background and stuff like that. So it's 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 a bit of a hit and miss thing. You can't you can't hit the whole positive spectrum of background yeah, noise. And I agree. It's just kind of, I think that there's kind of like a certain. A certain amount of it, you know, if people don't like it, you can't really do much to control it. It's, you know. Well, I think as well, I mean, background sound is kind of, it appeals to my sense of realism. Yeah, well, I love that. I love background uh, And my sense of um, capturing a live moment. Yeah. It does both of those things really well, but it loses a lot of other things. And I understand that. But for me, those things are more important. <laughs> you sent me a couple of. Uh, Facebook kind of messages about things that you were thinking that you should talk to me about. Have we covered all of those, or are there things we've missed? Um, I did. I did ask if I could pry your brains on the on your views on copyright. Oh God, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, we I said, and, and also that this would have been the whole episode if you'd have brought that up at the beginning. <laughs> it will only be. It's not something I want to debate you on. No, I'm no, literally no, no. just interested in hearing because <laughs> I had a few years ago. I had my artistic identity stolen by somebody who. Um, the very brief version of it is is, is he he, um, he he was uploading YouTube videos and putting artwork at the start of it, and he was just taking art from other people. And what he was doing with most of them was redrawing them, just tracing them completely. I did this one drawing of Daryl Dixon from The Walking Dead, and it, ha- it uses all these kind of gradient tones on it. And he, in the in his rip off of it, you can see that he tried to redraw it, and then he couldn't do the tone, so he just stuck half of what he'd done over my actual drawing. So it kind of fades from his shit attempt into my actual drawing. So it's just really, it doesn't even look like a good illustration, but it's, it's clearly, you can see what he's done, you know. And I had people like messaging me saying, do you know this guy is claiming that your artwork is his? And it was so weird because I looked it up and he's like, I can, I can say what his YouTube name is because he's still on YouTube. It's Jim's Nerd Nation, right? And um, he, he's got like thousands of followers and stuff. And he usually, I think he reviews anime and manga and stuff like that. And then he just has these random bits, these random drawings at the start. But he, there's like there's videos of where he sent printouts of the art to people. So there's on YouTube, there's videos of people unboxing my artwork, thinking it's from this guy and all this sort of stuff. And so I eventually, like, I sent him a, tw- a tweet or something saying, you know, well, this is my artwork, blah blah blah. And he says, oh, you've got no right to it. And then I sent him this this comparison of my art with his, where you could see his fading into mine, where he's just overlaid it onto mine. And then he started posting all this stuff saying that... Um, and I kept getting links to this. He'd been, he hadn't been saying it to me. It was, like, on YouTube comment sections saying that I'd been trying to blackmail him into taking these um, taking these pictures down, otherwise I wanted money off him or something. It made no sense because he, I think he, he was just, like, panicking and he was just coming up with all these lies and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and yeah, in the end, we had, his videos got taken down. I had the, the stuff in there, but he... Even to this day, he insists that I was trying to blackmail him and all this sort of stuff, so I don't give a fuck about naming him. But also, very briefly, I do, I could, I can see why you might have the view that copyright shouldn't be a thing, so that's why I was interested. Well, I mean, I think copyright shouldn't be a thing, certainly not in how it is currently. I think there's some complications around that. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking about cult- cultural appropriation, that's probably the biggest challenge to my... Uh, everything should be free copyright but at the end of the day we wouldn't even have hip-hop 
uh, in the first place that could be culturally appropriated unless yeah. uh, early hip-hop pioneers had broken all sorts of copyright. Mm. Um, the artist that you're talking about, the, the artwork that you're talking about being stolen, which I'm not down with people impersonating other people or taking their work and not linking back to them, crediting them properly if they can pay them, paying them. I'm pro all of those things, um, but I guess I'm not necessarily pro legislating these things because I think sometimes things should be much more fair use than, than which are not considered to be fair use. So the artwork you're talking about, ironically, is a drawing yeah, of a thing, yeah. right? Um, that some people would think that that character be, can be copyrighted. There's a lot of yeah, sure. It was that was, that was a whole part of the um, that was a whole part of the argument against it. I mean, also in in my case. I mean, I, I was lucky in that I was in a position where the artwork that he was stealing from me and claiming as his own wasn't costing me any money because it wasn't anything I was selling. It was just stuff that I'd done, like, you know, put online. But um, also, I kind of, like, it was more of a case that I was asking for credit for the fact that he'd put it on the video and he was he was denying that, that, any, that I'd created it at all, you know, this sort of thing. But it's, it's kind of... Um, it's a similar thing for me. Should we, I, should we start walking away from this truck now? It's getting a bit much... <laughs> Um, see, I also I hate the idea of a professional standard within illustration because I think that art should just be valid within the context of itself, like yeah. as an expression. So, with uh, with what I do, being a professional illustrator, you know, there's quite a lot of pressure to keep up with current trends, and my agents always asking me if I can do work that would appeal to certain audiences. And I'm kind of lucky that I have I've been doing it for so long that my technical ability isn't really under question most of the time but I I just I just don't feel that art should be limited in that way or any way really and so I, that's why I can sympathise with the idea that it should all be free because I do believe it should be free really well, I do too, but it's complicated because we live in a capitalist world. I mean, and this is the problem with the way that copyright works at the moment. I think practically it doesn't protect artists. No, it doesn't no. work for artists. It harms new artists who are trying to come up and it only ever benefits uh, pe- people with big success already and generally not even the artists with big success. It's the people who are profiting the most from those artists' work, which are normally uh, multinational corporations. Mm. Um, and so... It's not necessarily that I'm against an idea of trying to do something to um, to make things fairer for artists and to get us all paid and uh, under because we need to be paid under capitalism. I obviously, utopianly, all art would be free, all ideas would be free. Uh, we would share everything like without money being involved or whatever, or at least capitalism being involved as we the current system that privileges some people more than others uh, not being involved. Um, but the thing is, whether or not copyright should be scrapped altogether, which I think I think it should, but I also hear a lot of arguments pro it, uh, it definitely needs to be reformed and changed. Yeah. And the, I think that there's a lot more people who can agree on that uh, in the arts than there are who, who would go as far as I would of, like, absolutism, of, of, like, getting rid of copyright. So I think for now, as a pragmatist, I think the best thing is to push for reform. Um, but I think ultimately, if we do reform it, um, I would still advocate for scrapping it. Um, certainly, I couldn't have made the art I was making coming up without breaking all sorts of copyright in all directions uh, all the time. Um, but I never profited from any of that. Um, but I think if I had, it would have been, you know, I would have been pirating or uh, yeah. sampling 
things that were generally by people who didn't need the money anyway. So it's a complicated thing. Um, and I'm just talking musically in that. The irony is in words, in, in written form, everybody samples all the time, but it's just not as clear cut, as clear, like if someone's being derivative as a writer, yeah. it's not like as clear. Um, well, that's like one of the interesting things. I'm, you'd probably um, be more qualified to comment on it than me because I'm not a writer in any form, but sometimes I will find myself writing in somebody's voice, like I'm channeling, right. if I've been listening to a particular comedian or something like that. So there are definitely forms of it which aren't visible. Yeah, it's just like one of the reasons I did want to ask you about it is because, I mean, part of me struggles to see what a world where no copyright on art would look like, but I also knew that I would relate to your reasoning because I know how... how how deeply you think about these things and, and how many different angles that you consider when you, you know, when you talk about that sort of... Well, I've thought about copyright for a lot of years, but I can't say I'm definitely, like, I'm not yeah, an expert on it, I'm not le- legally trained or whatever um, about it, and I've certainly changed my position or nuanced it in many ways. But I think the thing is, we live in a world where if you have money you can do what the fuck you like mm. and that includes taking other people's work and just paying people off or having better lawyers that will make you get away with it all those sorts of things and if you haven't got any money you can't do the basic things to learn how to make art which is to copy and to reproduce things and to try things out and to I mean and I think you know I don't know as a writer as well it's very frustrating like quoting with good attribution I do think attribution is uh definitely a thing I believe in um, I don't know if I would make it mandatory and legalise it, like make it a legal thing, yeah. um, but I, I, I do really think that it's the job of anyone quoting someone to reference them back but I mean um, I think that quoting is so important to, to sharing ideas to changing ideas, to challenging ideas we need to be able to quote, we need to be able to take pictures of things um, you know, all of that stuff yeah, and if we don't have like it worries me that the state would get involved in any of that but then it worries me that the state exists uh, and it worries me that the state gets involved in anything so uh, I'm not necessarily the best uh, example of someone who's balanced on these things but that's where I come from well I mean the thing when you're talking about anything really and copyright within artwork is included it's a strand on a web you know there's, there's a whole of other things that are involved with it are very complicated and make it very difficult to to have a kind of solid opinion on, you know. Yeah. The, the, the sound that now you can hear, <laughs> listeners, is uh, obviously a train going over our heads and not the booming voice of capitalism getting angry that we're talking about <laughs> why it's not working for everyone. Well, you know what, for all the messages I've sent you saying how much I love the background noise, it's, it's like this is... Especially for, for my visit, it's, yeah, that's it's made true. it as loud as that possible. That is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my point of view on copyright. I uh, Thank you for sharing. Well, I'm, I'm happy to share it, um, but I'm also happy to change it uh, with new information. So I, I, I'm not as clear-cut on copyright as I used to be. I mean, I definitely am ultimately quite clear-cut on any form of kind of uh, non-communally decided rules. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I don't think any we've communally, communally decided copyright. I don't think we've sat down and, and, and gone, 
what do we need? What do artists need? What do people on the ground need? What do workers need? Yeah. If we've got to have capitalism, let's have some workers' rights. And I think the arts needs that. We, we haven't got very much kind of recourse to, to withdraw our labour because no, that's not what it's about. We do our labour because we love it. We do our labour every night without, like, without being told to do our labour. We do our labour for years yeah. um, with no idea that we'll ever get paid for it. Um, but we still have to live in the world, so it's complicated. Mm. Definitely. So, yeah, I can go on about copyright forever, so uh, <laughs> I probably should well, I apologise for not bringing it up earlier in the conversation. No, no, that's absolutely fine. Uh, people don't necessarily want to listen to me uh, talking about copyright forever. <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, and I'm also not too worried about going a bit long on this okay. one as well, because... Uh, I mean, I do go long on quite a lot of episodes, and also I might edit this down. Who knows? It might still be within an hour. Yeah, that's um, right. It won't be, I don't think. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting because you've been talking about Pete Holmes's You Make It Weird. Now, I don't, I have listened to that. I sometimes like it. I like the idea behind it. But the part of the idea behind it is that he kind of goes as long as he possibly can <laughs> with people, right? Yeah. So that's really interesting because you have people go through loads of different states and the conversation goes in loads of different directions and there's loads of different emotional tones. Um, but it is quite an endurance uh, test <laughs> with, with Pete Holmes's show because he's so all over the place in his own thinking yeah, that there's it's... no narrative thread for me to attach to I quite li- I like long form obviously uh, although I think Pete Holmes's long form is definitely a stop a few times uh, as you're going through it but, there I, are some, I, but mean, I but I need something to hook me in yeah it depends on I mean because I basically I listen to every episode chronologically up to like about episode 280 or something like that like in the course of a year while I was working because I worked for like 10 hours a day probably so I've just constantly got podcasts in the background and I did stop listening for a while and I have found it really difficult to get back into it because I feel it's almost like a narrative when you listen to it because you you see his personality changing like it's like binge watching a series really right you see that you see the stories as they happen and and yeah he does there are some stories some uh, subjects which he touches upon which don't really chime with me that much like he's been going he's been talking a lot about um Oh, what's his name? Is it Ram Das? Ram Das? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think quite a lot lately. And, you know, there are some little bits which are interesting, but I don't really need seven hours. About it. <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, I, I listen to Richard Herring as well, and, and there's quite a lot of his podcasts where it gets to the point at the end where the guest is literally like, is this ever going to stop? Yes. <laughs> Richard Herring is another endurance <laughs> test in a different way. Yeah. I think his shows are much more accessible. Uh, to a wider audience and I think his, his shows are also an in, a, a shorter endurance test because uh, even when he goes long at the Leicester Square Theatre podcasts um, he also goes uh, much shorter than uh, Peter Holmes does <laughs> but that's partly because he's got an audience with him and yeah. uh, the audience would not stand for Pete Holmes le- level <laughs> of like three hours is not without a break is not what uh, people pay money to go to see. Um, <laughs> so that kind of, uh, that, that, that is one of the restrictions Richard Herring has. But I, but I, I think there is a value to the long form uh, style because you do get to different places and surprise places in different ways. I mean, Richard Herring's is a very good example of that, his show, because, I mean, he, uh, the, the famous episode where Stephen Fry, uh, who I have, some 
current <laughs> uh, political problems with, but that's by the by, um, where Stephen Fry talks about uh, trying to kill himself and uh, his depression in a really, really eloquent way, and kind of made a revelation that uh, that was a, a first on that. Sh- like it was a an exclusive for Richard Herring yeah. uh, and podcasts in general, I guess. Um, but but that only happened because it was a long time in, and because it was a random question that was even was asked by a little boy uh, I think the guard does go down a little bit over that length of time yeah because you do settle into kind of like more of a human conversation than an interview well I think it's, it's not just is it the guard that goes down the rapport has been built to the point where trust you, is yeah and what you say is thought out and not defensive and not irrational and not like all of these things that I can often be in a you know in, in short burst conversations where you're like both in a rush like with my partner if we're both in a rush going in different directions we might end up snapping at each other right (laughs) but like if you've talked to someone for a couple of hours or an hour or whatever you do get to this kind of point of like you know you can you're in tune with each other so you don't sort of say things you regret as much you say things that you always want to say in a way that you've never managed to often i find and i guess that's kind of what long form can do yeah i mean i don't know why i'm near the end of a long form <laughs> podcast telling people why long form's good because they're going to be like yeah that's why i'm listening or they'll have turned off because it's gone on too long well with i mean with with your podcast and pete Ames's podcast i can I always used to think of them as therapy by proxy <laughs> because it is kind yeah. of it's where I've learned a lot about myself from listening to them yeah well know. I had that with D- uh, WTF with Mark Maron for yeah, a lot see, that's, for, there's for a lot, many years there's so many episodes I've kind of like stopped listening for about a month and I feel like I'm just there's, there's no way to get back into it because he's done so many no well I only I just chip in when somebody yeah. I know is on I mean the mental health uh, the mental illness happy hour is actually a show I admire much more in some ways than Mark Maron's now uh, yeah, I, I started listening to that recently. After. It, I think you recommended it. Yeah, I mean, that's very good, but it is very intense as well, so I have to make sure I'm in the right place to listen <laughs> to an episode. And plus, I find it... I don't know if this is a weird thing about me or, or not, but if I'm deciding to listen to an episode, I'm much more likely to listen to it if it's a woman talking than if it's a man, because I find it so much harder to kind of have sympathy for men um, <laughs> when they're talking about their mental health, which is terrible, um, and I probably should, <laughs> should get better at having sympathy for them. Um, but yeah, and I, I guess it's also because it's presented by a man, so you're always actually going to have his mental health. His, his mental health is always there uh, and so when it's two men that can be kind of a little bit too much for me <laughs> well, another kind of weirdly interesting thing about ASMR I can I can only watch ASMR artists as they're called that are female I don't know why I can't if I'm watching male artists it makes me uncomfortable but the reason I say that's interesting is because I've heard girls say the opposite that they can right. only watch men because women make them uncomfortable well maybe that's because it's a sensory thing maybe I and don't maybe know. it's like you feel a little if bit I, like you're being a bit like if I'm watching seriously if I'm watching because the ones that tend to sort of I get the reactions from the ones where they're actually playing with the microphone it's like quite harsh sounds playing against the microphone so it's like scratching and if I'm watching one and it's a guy, I'm literally like, oh, there's a guy like touching my ears. <laughs> it's really weird. Like it's, it's like not, it's not what I would expect me to react like. Because I am, I'm straight. I mean, I, I thought it was a, a time when I thought I might be bi, but I wouldn't expect myself to react that way. So I don't quite know why I have that strong and negative reaction. But um, but another thing I was I was going to say, just going off in another direction. Did you um, did you record radio shows when you were younger for uh, your own amusement? Um, I think. 
there are some there are recordings of me doing sort of radio showy stuff yeah. i guess but I, I not particularly i wasn't that interested in it i did a bit <laughs> of recording my dad was a documentary filmmaker he did some recording there were, there are cassettes of the of the family there are old cassettes of uh, the family reading stories for us when oh, we were I children love, i love old cassettes from from family recordings right i've so got loads that stuff of, I've got loads of shows that me and my friends used to do when we were about nine or ten on cassette, which is why I was asking. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I kind of like... There used to be a sad movie that did want to do a podcast, but I, I kind of... I feel like, in a way, that's kind of been satiated by listening to so many. <laughs> I don't really have the urge to create like I used to. Yeah, there's a lot out there now. Yeah, So it can feel a bit like, what have I got to say that's different? <laughs> But, I mean, everybody has got something to say that's different, so I wouldn't... You kinda, yeah, wouldn't, you have the don't same... Don't write it out, you never, you never know. Um, well, you have the off, same right? sort of thing in art as well. Like, I, I've spent quite a lot of time doing really detailed illustrations that kind of, like, people say are cool but don't really go many places. And when, every now and then you touch upon something that you think is a little more unique within the sea of all these different voices, and that's when my kind of creativity and my motivation really shoots up when there's something that... that um, inspires me to do more of it and that I feel like people will remember if that makes sense yes no I'm I, that does make a lot of sense to me I'm very much I mean I'm in that with a different pro- project at the moment that I'm making a, a drama podcast that will come out later this year well I don't know when I'll put this out maybe it's already out <laughs> maybe if it's out I'll probably have to change how I'm talking about it but yeah there's a project I'm doing at the moment that's like that and you're right finding those th- those things that seem a bit different and if there's a lot that's the same, if people are doing it well already, you know, that's a, that's what you think. Well, that's kind of how I feel about the animations that I've been doing. Because the reaction... I mean, because basically, I made this in about... I think it was probably around about 100 hours, kind of like doing it in my spare time and the odd full day. And that was purely because I'd had this... I'd been wanting to experiment with animation. I had this idea and... It's kind of... I have to be careful that my, my bipolar doesn't take over the menu because you get these insane levels of productivity when you just work, work, work non-stop. But, so I was trying to control it a bit, but I, I spent all this time on it, and I, in my head I was cutting corners to get it done quickly because I'm quite impatient as well. I always want to get to the end result, and it's something I have to really watch. Yeah, me too. And so that's kind of why I was surprised that everyone reacted so well to it because I kind of expected people to say, oh, I see where you've just clipped in a little bit of an earlier speech to fill that bit out instead of animating it again. Maybe yeah. that's the whole point. People don't know that they've <laughs> yeah, yeah. done that. Well, see, that's, just, that's one the of the things... People don't know that I edit these episodes yeah, yeah. in some ways because I just cut out things that... They do, you don't know what I've taken out. <laughs> that's the other thing as well with me saying about how sometimes I don't feel satisfied with my last piece of work. I realise that when somebody looks at it and I receive a compliment, they're seeing it for what it is, I'm seeing it for what I intended it to be. So then I have to realise they're, they're seeing it just... Yeah for its own sake yeah well it's their thing yeah once you've made it it's theirs like what yeah, they see true, yeah. in it or hear in it what they hear I might hear one of these episodes back and go <clears throat> oh wow that's amazing or that that bit goes like that background sound perfectly illustrates the thing that that person's <laughs> talking about how serendipitous or whatever it is uh, but somebody else might not notice that <clears throat> or someone might notice a different thing or something might have a resonance in their life that's completely different from the resonance it has in you uh, who's listening to it hopefully still in the future at home <laughs> and and so yeah i mean it's just it's a strange thing art it doesn't really belong to us and i guess maybe that also is part of the reason that i can't get my head around copyright 
Uh, and it's kind of the reason I can't get my head around the idea that people can own you know streets yeah. land it's really, yeah that is really water strange. like like all of these things it doesn't make any sense to me uh, that these things can be owned um, which is not to say I don't understand having things that are yours I do um, but I, I, I it's it's owning things that are no one's yet that I find really hard to to get my head around uh, and if they're yeah so I mean that's it that's part of the copyright thing art is kind of inherently no one's and also it has like it's it's like worthless but it's yeah, also yeah. The, the the thing that's worth the most you know in in in, the, in 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 at least in my heart like I, i'm not suggesting everyone has to care about art um although i think everyone does care about some kind of art it's just often they don't think of it as art because that that a word kind of makes people go that's not for me i like yeah. you know whatever i like and then that it will be have some art in it I kind of oh. feel I feel a similar way about people with how they are creative. People are creative in ways that we don't realise. Like, I mean, because I did used to look at people and think I don't understand how anyone can go through life without creating something. My dad really loves gardening. That's obviously how he expresses his creative side. Right. I mean, he doesn't necessarily think about it in those terms. But if you if you um, if you look at the various ways that art does spring up in the world, and it's and it is in ways that people wouldn't necessarily classify as art as well, like that. It is. There's there's a lot of. Um, I mean, because I, I I used to get quite um, into listening to Alan Moore interviews and stuff, and he'd talk about how, you know, you you bring these things out of the human psyche and bring them into existence, and you were kind of almost painting the human psyche onto reality in a way. Yeah, I've read them too, or watched them too. <laughs> yeah, he's very psychedelic in his uh, in his thoughts on art and creative scene. Well, he's and a magician. I, I that's why. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know. And uh, he's, it's, it's always been interesting to me that I, he resonates so much with me and I like his work so much and his ideas so much because ultimately there's also still something that I think is kind of ridiculous about kind of being a magician and like uh, <laughs> accepting that kind of side of things so much. But I think it's kind of, in, in anyone else, I wouldn't be able to kind of, forgive it but he somehow manages to make it make sense which is not to say he's you know beyond criticism there's always criticism to be made of people and i'm sure like that's the thing the longer we have the internet the 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 more we find that are wrong with our heroes Um, (laughs) oh god yeah and like nowadays i'm just worried about saying (laughs) i like anyone you know a few years ago i did i did realize that Never meet your heroes has turned to never follow them on Twitter in the modern age. <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I was a huge fan of Ricky Gervais and then I followed them on Twitter and I had to unfollow him within like a day or something. Yeah, no, but it is like that. But then at the same time, as you say, following artistic heroes has been yeah, yeah. like a, a thing for you. And, you know, never meet your heroes, yeah, sure. But at the same time, I don't know, there's something that's valuable I don't really about believe that. that anyway, I mean, I, it's been funny to me that like yeah now I, I've gone from thinking I would never be able to talk to these people to sometimes having arguments with them on Twitter <laughs> about their beliefs or their I know, opinions it's crazy like I if my eight year old self knew like that I could just without even thinking about it just send a message to like you know somebody I admired when I was a kid and then they like it I get right. a notification but this person I used to like be obsessive as liked my tweet like I am um, through arts emergency I kind of um became friends as much as you do on Twitter like you know when they follow you back with um, somebody from S Club 7 who I was like obsessed with when I was a kid and 
And I just like, I don't even think about the fact that I'd send her a tweet and she'd reply to it. And I'm like, I was fucking in love with her when I was six. <laughs> Maybe not six, more like 12. Yeah. So right. yeah, Twitter, it's, it's social media in the modern age, it's really weird with how you have these kind of almost connections that you don't really think about with, with, these, with your heroes. Yeah, no, it is weird. I mean, it's interesting to be talking about this on the South Bank and... Uh, that I sort of ended up having an argument with Billy Bragg on Twitter about uh, his attitude towards the uh, the skate rink that uh, was under threat that people will have heard in the background a couple of times oh, as we've walked past. I, I saw that, on, it's the first time I've been here and I was I was admiring it on my way up. Yeah. I think it looks pretty awesome. Yeah, no, the, the kids organised themselves to uh, to keep it to keep it as a place. I mean, it's a monument to a certain extent. It's been here for a long time. Um, and Billy Bragg was on the side of the South Bank Centre that were, wanted to give it to developers. And oh, his right. reasoning was because there would be some studios inside it which would have offer resources to local kids. But, I mean, I was like, well, the skaters were there first and why? who are you to say that a guitar is more important than a skateboard? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so we had that kind of an argument. But it was weird to me because I thought, you know, I'd never meet him in my life and there <laughs> I was having a, a, an argument with him. Uh, and he was wrong, I think, still. Um, but I, he's changed his position on some things over the years, and I've I've always admired that in him. Um, but yeah, we don't agree on everything, and that's that's always the way. So anyway, I mean, we, this is probably one of the longer episodes, and that kind of is, as I was saying, fitting uh, for uh, a Pete Holmes fan to be <laughs> represented in this way. But yeah. at the same time, uh, not all my listeners are Pete Holmes fans, so uh, we should probably wrap this up. Well, you, uh, you, can, you can cut out all the horrible the bit where we have. Street cleaners going past and stuff like that and not lose I, too much. I could, couldn't I? But then the content will make me keep it. And that'll, like, that'll <laughs> be the thing. Like, maybe it won't. Maybe I will go, actually, we could cut that. But I've put out stuff with much worse background sound than this. Uh, <laughs> and I'll do it again, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, it's, you, you could edit this down to 10 minutes and I'd be fine. I know you won't, but... No, well, that would take a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it takes, do, a, yeah. it takes half a day if I'm lucky to edit a game better acquainted. Um, wow, because really? I, yeah, because I edit for um, for flow, not not length. Um, but when I'm ed- editing something to be shorter, especially if it was this long, the longer it is, the harder it is to get down to a short amount. Um, but that's okay. Sometimes it's worth doing that, and some pieces of art are supposed to be like that, and that's a different kind of art than this one. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I could edit it down. It might be edited down. I I, I have done that before. But at the end of the day. The things that I think are really hard in the background, and I, I don't like background sound sometimes. Uh, what I don't like is when you can hear conversations and they, oh, other people's and, conversations. And that, and that yeah. can kind of <laughs> create a kind of, you know, which one am I supposed to listen to? And I was then, actually, yeah. there was one GBA I was listening to where you were talking to somebody in a, in a park and I was, uh, I was transfixed on an argument that two people were having in the background. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the sort of thing that I don't necessarily like. And, and yeah. when I've recorded at the Royal Festival Hall, um, in the past, which is where we met today, and we might have recorded. Um, I've sort of thought we were, it was a quiet moment, and then the whole of the the audience have come out for a musical thing, and then there's been like so many people around us, and it's been so loud. Um, and I'd much rather uh, the sound of uh, someone in a building site in the background, or the skaters in the background, than uh, loads of conversations all around us. Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good. But it's been a real pleasure uh, walking around and talking with you and uh, sharing. Uh, our different perspectives on art and uh, being a man and uh, mental health it's been quite a, a kind of like quite a, quite thematically uh, connected to the to the work that I normally do I hope I've uh, 
allowed there to be enough of you in it. No, sure, I, I feel happy. I don't feel like I've uh, not had the chance to put my view across on anything. So yeah, it's all good. I've enjoyed it too. It's well, that's great. Uh, the last thing that I ask my guests uh, is, do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, if, if you search for Sketchy Magpie, you'll see a few different websites on the first few resorts. I am on Twitter, but I don't really post much, so it's up to you if you want to follow me. But yeah, Sketchy Magpie on YouTube is where you'll find the animations that I'm now uploading. Brilliant. And uh, the, the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience, if you're still there. <laughs> Bye, everyone. You can... Follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. On Monday, the 26th of September, I'm launching my new podcast, The Family Tree. When my dad found out about a mystery concerning a long-forgotten friend of his, I decided to investigate it in the only way that I know how, by having conversations. I can't make judgments or say anything without knowing all the facts and everything around it. It's sort of exploring each of the parameters of each potential story you're given and trying to work out how it can fit into each one of those. And I guess in a way it's all of them until until it's none of them or one of them. Mark Sullivan, who disappeared 15 years ago, was found dead in January this year when a forest was cleared for a new building development. I see the world differently, having known Mark Sullivan. You're like the, the, the person who's the witness for all of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you, the only yeah. thing they'll know of their dad as, a, as an adult, you know, is going to be through, through your eyes. I mean, I guess that's quite a big responsibility. It's, it's difficult. The body they found still had the arm and teeth that he lost in a car accident and seems to have died eight years before he disappeared. I mean, who's the dad you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with it doesn't make any sense like even if there's some other reason for that other body he'll still have died but whether i would have felt different if mark had disappeared before the accident compared to when he did disappear i don't know you keep talking about this mystery and i don't i think i don't know i think someone's made a mistake somewhere i know you don't mean it like this but the question's almost offensive In this podcast, I try to unpick this mystery through a series of conversations with Mark's family and friends. But I don't know, and there's only so many ways that someone can say I don't know. I don't don't think it's a mystery, it's just... Yeah, you said it's a mistake. There are things that I think I probably can't tell you about. But you also can't deny that it's it's evidence. Obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Right. I mean, there are things you can't explain. If he turns up, he turns up. But, you know, we're fine as we are. He's not going to. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about it because... Because he's not going to. to. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. And I wasn't sure what you would have perceived that as. It's interesting that now I'm sort of this far into this project, I've spoken to so many people and I still don't really have anything uh, to fill those holes with. Did Mark have a twin? Was there some sort of shady dealing on the part of the police? Was there was there a mistake in the identification? All of these questions are in the air, I think. I can't explain how that ghost then 
became a, a body that, that's been buried. That's a, a sort of a gap for me. I don't understand what he's talking about, how, about how he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. I mean, he's got two dads, essentially. I've kind of decided to frame the show as if it's fiction. Isn't this just, like, upsetting everybody all over again? Like, it's, you know, it's not very nice. I think God does move in mysterious ways. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. It's too much for one person to puzzle out by himself. I don't have answers. I don't know.